Hi folks, this is Jack Spiergold with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 7th, 2015, and this is episode 1620 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because it is Friday. That means it's time for the Listener Council Q&A Show. This is where you've sent me your emails to jack at the com with TSPC Expert in the subject line, asked me a question in one or two sentences, and then gave me any follow-up details you had after that, uh, and told me which expert council member the question's for. If you're not sure, you can say, hey, you can pick a council member for this, but it's better if you tell me who you want to answer the question. And it goes into a special folder, and every week I go through them, and I'm kind of doing it in the order they come in right now. Some people have a backlog, some people don't, uh, as far as council members go. And uh, I send them a question every week. They answer the question as long as they're not piking out and not showing up. And everybody showed up today. Nobody piked out, took a vacation, whatever. Everybody's here today. And uh, everybody's uh, got an answer for you today. And that's usually the case. We usually have we have 13 council members. We usually have at least 10, 11 every week. And I love when we have the full dugout and everybody shows up. I also have one little thing that I'm going to talk about today that has to do with dun, 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 the Republican debates. Don't worry. It's something you haven't heard yet. It's something you haven't heard yet. Nobody said it. You won't believe me, but then if you go back and look at video of it, you'll go, son of a gun. That redneck duck farmer's right again. Anyway, uh, you'll have to wait on that first. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, that's why they call them SawTac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, Get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, SawTac.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at the year that was an episode. Uh, the year that was the episode. Sixteen twenty is a big year. It, it really is. And most of you are thinking in your head, I know that number from somewhere. Well, I got a bunch of different stuff from Alex Shrug for for you today at tspwiki.com. Uh, number one is the Blue Laws and the daughter Trump. Yes, daughter Donald Trump's daughter. How does she fit the sixteen twenty? You'll find out because that's the one I'm going to read today. I'm just going to give you a few comments on the other one. The other one that Alex has for us today is Hello New Plymouth. The Mayflower has landed. Yes, that's why the number is ringing bells in your head. 1620, the pilgrims landed in the New World in a place outside of the control of the Virginia Company. Therefore, they were outside of English law. And it was then called New England. Um, there'll be a lot more about the Pilgrims, and this is like what this year is mostly already known for. And I like to bring you the stuff you don't know. So that's all I'll say about that today. I do have to give you uh, another little segment. I like when Alex does these instead of big long segments, they're just little blurbs. Notable events, science stayed coaches in the submarine, right? So the scientific method comes with Bacon. So Sir Francis Bacon uh, establishes the scientific method in 1620. The first stagecoach rolls up. doesn't look like an Old West stagecoach. It's called a stagecoach because it travels along prearranged stations or stages. It's better than a wagon, but not by much at this time. And surprise, a real submarine. You have to row it. It's just an experiment for the English Navy. But a Dutch engineer manages to build one with leather over a wooden frame. It can travel to a depth of 12 feet, and King James took a ride in it. It was never used in combat. Um, those types of submarines, actually, if I think if people would have understood what they had available to themselves at the time, could have been very influential in battles. Not maybe direct battles, but indirect guerrilla warfare, which is how some of them will be used in the future. I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. But I'm going to read for you today The Blue Laws and the Daughter Trump, because I have an interesting take on this one myself. The blue laws are not yet true blue, but they have come to the new world this year. For those that have forgotten what blue laws are, here's a quick refresher. Don't do any work on Sunday. Why are these laws called blue laws? Well, it has to do with the phrase true blue, which hasn't come into vogue yet in 1620, but the laws are on the books compelling English settlers to follow biblical edicts regarding the Sabbath. Certainly compulsory attendance of services is part of that. No extensive travel is to be done unless one is already in the midst of travel and business and closed for the day. People in those days made a distinction in their minds between common law and ecclesiastical law, but in regards to the clergy uh, and certain members of matters of marriage and inheritance. In reality, the so-called, so-called secular courts have long since taken over the major elements of enforcing religious law. In other words, not a separation of church and state. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, full disclosure, I'm an Orthodox Jew, which means that I keep the Sabbath laws just like Ivanka Trump does. She converted. That means no significant work can be done and no travel beyond my local neighborhood. My animals get fed. If I owned a cow, I would milk, but if I owned a horse, I'd, I'd walk on the Sabbath. No phone calls, no mowing the lawn, no discussion of buying and selling. I have met Christians who feel the same way, even though we disagree exactly what day the Sabbath falls. I have some sympathy for Seventh-day Adventists. They are definitely swimming against the tide. Even though I think there should be no blue laws, the United States still maintains such laws in modified form. Here in Texas, the car dealerships must pick one day a week to be closed. It used to be Sundays, but after several court battles, it was reasoned that because there is a difference of opinion on which the Sabbath is, the business can select a day to close. At this point, I was going to go into a discussion about how one determines which day is the Sabbath falls, but let's skip that old debate. If you care, seek out the advice of your local religious authority. 
I have a completely secular take on this in a couple different ways. Uh, number one, compulsory attendance at services in the Virginia colony. I think we look at that and we don't really understand why. I mean, we just think it's, well, you know, you, religion was enforced and that's just the way it was. Um, I don't think it's just that. I, I think you have to put yourself in a position of a very small number of people and, and what, you know, today would equal a million miles away from home. Okay? Support is a million miles away. Ships aren't coming in every week right now. It is very possible that you will be dead by the end of the next winter. It's very possible. The only way that you're going to survive is if everybody pulls together and everybody works for each other and everybody makes sure that they take care of each other and no one sells anybody out. Okay? The most uh, affiliation that they had for any code of ethics of the time was their faith, was their religion, was church. So if you can't show up for church on Sunday for an hour in this time and this place, then how can we trust that you won't sell us out to the natives or you don't have something going on the side or whatever? I think it was more about making sure that everybody was in it together. I think that was a big part of why a lot of religious rituals existed in the past. So that's one thing. On the blue laws, I want no blue laws. I think that blue laws are stupid. I really do. The fact that if I want to go car shopping on Sunday in Texas, for instance, I can't. Or, you know, I can buy a six-pack of beer on Sunday at the grocery store while I'm doing my grocery shopping, but not at 11.59. But at 12 o'clock, Jesus says it's okay. That's basically how I feel these laws are written. These laws are nonsensical. They, they, they really are. They're being enforced by the state. I'm going to tell you something, though, that I, I think a lot of you will be surprised to hear me say. I don't think that it's a bad idea to have some level of them past, uh, practiced at the individual level. One of the greatest values I see in things like no work on Sunday is that means that you spend time with your family or you spend time with your community, whether it's with church or whether it's, I don't know, watching a football game and tailgating. I don't care. You're with the people you care about rather than seeing to business. And that's another thing we need to look into the past about, about the Sabbath and a day of rest and how this would have been uh, taken by the common man. Well, the people in charge might want to look at this and say it's because we're you know, honoring God or whatever. I want you to think about yourself working in, in, in the New World in the 1600s, middle 1600s. One of the jobs that you would do would be felling trees, great big trees in this New World. I mean, trees that no one in Europe has seen except for a few protected specimens forever, and there's trees and trees and trees. Remember, a squirrel could have gone from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River without getting out of a tree when we first got here. Straight, beautiful pole trees. And the king says, ah, masts. I want masts for my ships. So one of the jobs you might have is felling these trees, taking all the branches off them, peeling them, cutting to lengths, and skidding them out. Now imagine you do that for 12, 14, 16 hours a day, especially in the summer when you have long light. And someone says, we should honor the Sabbath here and not work on Sundays. Do you think you're going to object to it no matter what you believe about religion? My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Uh, I want to start out with something that relates to Donald Trump from the debates last night, the Republican debates. There were two debates. 
There was the minor league debate that nobody watched. Somebody posted a disingenuous meme on Facebook that showed like the minor league debate, like all the people you have no idea who they are. And there's like 20 people in the audience and they're like, when more candidates and media show up than, than people to watch your debate, you know, your party's sunk. Um, of course, you know, later on with the big debate, half of Cleveland Cavalier Stadium was jam-packed. So that was a disingenuous meme. Not that I stick up for Republicans or Democrats uh, at the political level, but I just think we should be honest about things. We shouldn't be disingenuous when we, we do things. Now, some people might say what I'm about to tell you has to do with my personal perception bias. I will tell you that I am on, I am on alert for that in this myself. I really am, because it helps make a case that I've been making to you guys for over eight months now. Over eight months ago, I came on air and I said the following. All of you people up in a wad about the next presidential debate need to know this right now. Your next president is most likely going to be Scott Walker. And people were like, what? Who? What? Huh? And I just looked at the record the guy had in Wisconsin how it would play well with, with the middle of the road, the 20% that are undecided independent voters, and would it be enough with the 40% red meat voters and what percentage of them show up to vote in primaries to get the guy the, the, the nomination? And I thought, out of everybody running, yeah. And here's why. I think when it comes down to it, when people vote, they and, and polling right now, they're polling changes a lot between now and when you get up near elections, and here's why. Right now, when you ask somebody in a political poll, who they're going to vote for, they're not really telling you who they're going to vote for. Most people aren't. Most people are telling you who they think is going to win. right? So the low numbers for all these other people, those are people saying, I'm generally going to vote for them. But a lot of people that really haven't thought about it, that are considered a likely voter by the polling source, will say, well, Jeb Bush, because they've heard of him. Okay? Or Donald Trump. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Well, he's winning. The, he's in the polls. Yeah, him. I'm voting for him. Yeah. It's that kind of thing now. As you get closer, the people that are actually going to vote actually start thinking about who's left and start making decisions. So when I look at the Republican side, I think who actually is electable? I think the, the Republican voter that shows up in the primaries, even though the whole thing's a rigged game, really is voting to their conscience the best they can. They look at somebody like Jeb Bush and go, I don't think this guy wins. I think if you put a Bush against a Clinton, and even though I don't think, by the way, I don't think Clinton's going to be the Democratic nominee, but we'll save that for another day. But when these, these primaries start, I think people will still be thinking that way. This guy loses to Hillary Clinton. This guy has no differentiation between Hillary Clinton. This guy is well-known because his brother was president. We already did that with the son. So I think there's a lot of people that might vote for him that would just turn around and say, don't think he can get elected. So I'm not going to try to put a guy up there that I don't think he can get elected. So I think Bush washes out. Trump is a media circus. It's entertainment value. Last night at the debates, he did not disappoint me in continuing to say things that many times while I agreed with were put so poorly that they just won't win over people who are on the fence about them. And that's what winning the nomination is about. It's not about keeping the 20% you have. It's getting enough of the rest to come on board with you to give you a commanding lead so you can win the nomination. And I think if anything, you're going to see Trump's numbers go down. Don't note this shit. The mainstream media, MSNBC, CBS, and all, not Fox that did the hack job on Trump last night, those people are saying he won the debate. They want Trump to win the nomination because they know then their horse gets in, whoever it is on the Democratic side, because Trump doesn't win in the general election. I'm sorry. He's also unelectable. He says things in a completely wrong manner for the situation. 
I won't go into it, but there were many questions he was asked last night and what I considered a, a hack attack by Fox News, who, who loathes him, by the way, um, that I could have answered those questions much better and still been honest to the core of what Trump thinks. So if I could do better, then everybody else can too. So those two guys, even as they came into the race, I said, I just don't see them. And as I look at everybody else, Ted Cruz, not going to happen. Marco Rubio, man, the guy talks a great game. He really does. And I think he was the, the most stellar performer in language last night. But Scott Walker has a record, an executive record. And it's things that will feed well to Republicans, creating jobs, smaller government, taking on unions, etc. And being successful and being attacked by the left and standing right through it and never getting nasty, just doing what needed to be done to get it done. I'm not saying that would happen. I'm saying that's what it looks like. Okay, So that's why I think Walker is your next president. Now here's what you've been waiting for. Here's what nobody seems to have seen last night. Here's what I guarantee you have not heard in mainstream news at all or on the talking head radios or anything. Donald Trump admires the shit out of Scott Walker. When Walker was talking, Trump was just to his side. And every time Walker spoke, there was no smugness in Trump's face. It was almost pride. It was almost like watching a father look at a son giving a great speech and thinking, I'm proud of my son. I really like what he's saying. This is great. I know you may not believe that, But if you go back and find some video of this, just find video of Scott Walker talking. And any time the camera is wide enough in angle to see Walker and Trump, you'll see that. So here's what I think happens. Trump's media boost plays out. People start to get real with this and go, this is not a guy I want for president. Okay? Um, Trump would have done well to point out people like Winston Churchill and knowing the time for strong language and stuff. Stuff like I'm saying, I could have answered the questions better for him than he did for himself. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I used to bribe politicians. It's not going to get you elected, right, until you come up with how do you prevent that from happening in the future, which he hasn't done. So Trump starts to play out, starts to fall in the polls, realizes I can only do so much with this, and may very well throw his backing behind Scott Walker. The day that happens, my prediction becomes true. Now, again, I know that my perception bias slips in there. But I challenge you, check it out. Go find that video. Uh, if anybody has a video uh, uh, where you can see this, send it to me. I'll append it to the show notes for today's show. I know that's not a big survival topic or anything, but I, I do believe dissecting what's going on in media and being able to read what's transparent helps us to deal with the bullshit soup that we see. That's what I saw last night. Um, I, I found, I'll also say this on, in defense of Donald Trump. The, the guy was asked almost no policy questions whatsoever. Almost every question was an attack on something he had said. And, and if, if Trump is going to somehow turn this around, what he needs to learn to do is something that politicians do all the time. Don't answer the question as asked. That's what he did last night. He, he asked the question, answered the questions as asked. What he should have done is turned it to the issue he was talking about and talked about the issue. Trump is not a debater. He's never been in a formal debate in his life, from what I've heard him say himself in some interviews. So he just went in one. So there's a learning curve there. Uh, I think what people that are on the fence about Trump want to see is, can you say, okay, look, there's a time to turn off parts of this personality and bring the parts that are really good to the table and keep them. And he wasn't able to turn those off. And I think, whether you think that's good or not, I think that doesn't play with voters. The people that vote 
in large enough numbers to get someone nominated. So let's go ahead and get into uh, your first uh, question for an expert council member today. This one is from listener Stephen. It is for Ben Falk from Stephen. Ben, what would you consider some of the most important skills for personal and community resiliency? How do you suggest people start improving those skills? What knowledge or skill have you found to be personally more useful than you expected it would be when you first learned it? That's a great question. Ben, what say you, sir? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. It's a great question um, about the information and skills that I needed and continue to need that I didn't have any training in or, or didn't think I would need, I guess is, a, is, is more accurate. Um, the list is many. I'll just may take a stab at some of the main ones. I think plumbing and electrical work, you know, in a lot of trades work in general, I've had to do a lot of plumbing and quite a bit of electrical, both in the house and outside, that I didn't have any training in. I think it's really key. I would love to learn basic trades at a younger age. Uh, plant propagation is a big one. I had no training in. I studied um, a little bit later on, but now I've had to really teach myself a lot, um, grafting and vegetative propagation and, um, you know, multiplying plants from seed. Super key if you want to have a lot of plant material in your life and the abundance of that without spending a, a, a fortune on um, on on that material. And um, also a lot of softer skills like business management and project management, Um you know, from all the way from, you know, contractual process right through deliverables and people management related to that. You know, how to be a good boss, how to delegate, how to support people, how to communicate with people. Uh, that's been, you know, a lot of challenges over the years. Luckily, I've been able to work with some people for a very long time and continue to work on that and improve that. Um, communications and sales is, is a big one. I think I had a bunch of natural talent with that, but I continue to work on that. Um, I didn't really have a lot of training on that and just had a kind of disposition towards sharing, you know, kind of what it is we do. Um, that's been really important. Um, and then I think a lot of this stuff, all of that, certainly many other skills and information comes down to the management of the self, you know, what we call zone zero or zone zero zero in permaculture. You know, if that foundation isn't there, then we can't continue to manifest for a long period of time in a in a great way in the world and, I think, do positive things and productive things, you know, if we're always kind of hung up in our own drama or dealing with personal issues. And we all have them, I think. Um, we're all born with either more or less. Um, I think I've been relatively lucky on that front, but... You know, I think we all have those issues to work on, kind of um, how to stay, like, healthy, vibrant, inspired human beings um, that are really kind of firing on all cylinders and just tuned and, and working very well, um, much like a landscape, you know, or, or a machine can. Um, if we don't keep tuned and, and stay optimal, you know, our work can't stay optimal. And I think that's something I keep learning more and more every year. Um, and I did come into this work with a, with an understanding of that, you know, with really wanting, with being really inspired to kind of be vigorous and lead a vigorous kind of um, less domesticated uh, life, if you will. But I continue to, to remember that how necessary that is, and to continue to expand kind of my foundation of that, of, of taking care of the self. And so that's a big one as well. Um, but thanks, it's a great question, really important one. Great stuff from Ben with a lot to think about there. Um, I want to point out, just kind of as an aside, uh, Ben mentioned plant propagation. And I think that anybody that started to do work in the uh, permaculture world or just homesteading world where you're doing a lot of plantings, 
really starts to understand how important that skill is very, very quickly because the cost of this stuff adds up so fast. And it's, I mean, people always focus on the cost of trees and trees get expensive, you know, if you're buying a hundred of them or something and they're all grafted varieties or what have you. But when you start doing large scale design, I'll tell you what eats into your lunch is the perennials, the smaller, uh, the herbaceous, the shrubs, because you use so many more of them. And just want to remind you guys, there is a plant propagation course you can take with Permaethos, taught by Nick Ferguson. Uh, everybody that's taken it has just been absolutely blown away with how awesome it is. And the one negative I find actually is a positive. We've had one person out of several hundred people take this course that asked for a refund. And this person was already very, very um, experienced with plant propagation. And they said, there's nothing wrong with it. I just, this is not advanced enough for me. I thought it would be more advanced. Well, there's a master class coming in the future from Nick on this, but that says something to those of you who are thinking, can I really do this? This brings you in at the entry level and teaches you everything you need to know about six really key methods of plant propagation, how to do it right, and how to do it from a standpoint of providing your own needs or how to set up a business doing it. And there, I want to remind you guys also, there's over four hours of bonus conference call material, Q&A with Nick and I. We sat here together at this very desk at this very microphone, and the, the first block of students that came in and answered questions two days in a row for them. Uh, that was never advertised as part of the course, and it's now available as part of the course. Many of the students said, after those Q&A sessions, the Q&A sessions were worth the cost of the course. Just want to throw that in there. I don't over-promote things from Permaethos, but... Um, if you're unhappy with a course from Permethus, we refund your money, man. So uh, consider uh, taking a look at that. I have a link in today's show notes for it. Uh, on that note, our next question is for Erica Strauss. Erica is asked by Andrew in Colorado, can organ meat be used in making canned broth and stock? I've been canning my own beef and poultry stock for years using saved bones and carcasses along with veggies and spices. I've never considered organ meat. Can it be done? Should I roast them before adding them to the stock? Will the nutritional value decrease in the canning process? Thanks, Andrew in Colorado. Erica, what say you on that one? Hey, Jack, it's Erica. I'm calling in to talk about something absolutely awful this week. No, I'm just kidding. It's not awful, but it is awful organ meats because this week's question comes to me from Andrew who wants to know if he can use organ meats in his stock. And there are, you know, many things in life where the question you want to be asking yourself is not can I do something, but should I do this thing? And that's really where adding organ meats to stock comes in. Can you add them? Yeah, absolutely. Not a problem. Assuming the organs themselves are fresh and well handled and in good shape, then uh, there's nothing dangerous at all about adding organ meats to stock. And adding them to your stock isn't going to change the final product at all from a canning safety standpoint. Now, should you do this thing? Well, that really depends on the organ that we're talking about. So let's go through a variety of awful, and I will give you my opinion on how I would use it. First up, liver. Probably the most commonly eaten organ meat. Uh, with any liver, beef, chicken, lamb, duck, pork, whatever, I would absolutely not add this to my stock pot. The reason is, first, I'm one of those people who really likes eating liver. So I think it's just far too valuable of a food item to make pate and stuffing and sausage and other delicious things. So I don't want to sort of waste it in the stock pot. Secondly, liver will add a very distinctive minerality to your stock. 
liver eaters know what I'm talking about. It's that I'm sucking on a penny kind of taste. And unless we're talking about like one chicken liver and a couple gallons of stock, people who are sensitive to this organy mineral kind of flavor will almost certainly know that there's a liver undertone in your finished stock. That's going to really limit what you can do with the stock. You know, and frankly, even people like me who really enjoy eating liver when it's in something like a pate don't necessarily want some random background liver flavor in chicken noodle soup. Okay, second, kidneys. I've got a joke for you guys from my brother-in-law who used to be a snout-to-tail butcher. How do you cook kidneys? You boil the piss out of them. Bum <laughs> Kidneys are in the same category as liver. They can be delicious when properly prepared, but generally this means soaking, sometimes in milk or something else that's known to pull out strong flavors, um, because you really want to get out the natural funkiness of kidneys before you eat them. They can have a sort of barnyardy kind of quality that many people find quite off-putting. So another uh, organ meat I would absolutely not add to stock, because again, that flavor just isn't going to play well with other things that you want to use your stock for. Okay, next on our list, the gizzard. Obviously, this is just for poultry. Um, mammals don't have gizzards. But uh, the gizzard, it's really a judgment call. It does not have the same strength of flavor that the liver or the kidneys will, but it can still add a little bit of that organ meat minerality quality. So generally, if you like eating gizzards, you're probably pretty safe to add that gizzard to your stock. You're probably not going to find that gizzard undertone particularly offensive in the stock. But if you're not sure, I would skip the gizzard. Too. And of course, if you're working with fresh gizzards, make sure you slice them open, flip them inside out, and fully clean and trim them up before you use them for whatever you're going to use them for, cooking or stock making. Next stop, the heart. Except for a few pretty squidgy valve type things, the heart is just tough, lean muscle fiber, kind of like a really cheap, intensely flavored steak. B for chicken heart, it really doesn't matter. As long as you rinse out any excess blood or give it a quick soak in cool water beforehand, there's really no problem adding heart to your stock. From a flavor standpoint, it's similar to just adding lean meat to the stock pot. Now that said, I really think the best use for heart is to trim away the valves and then grind the heart itself into a ground meat and use it as a flavor enhancer and extender for ground meat. I once helped uh, my sister and brother-in-law with uh, duck slaughter that they did and ended up taking home a whole quart bag full of duck hearts. So I ground these hearts up and I added them to a big pot with some grass-fed ground beef and some pastured pork and I made this really spicy, delicious chili con carne. And I'm telling you guys, this was the best chili I've ever made. There is something about heart that's like meatier than meat, beefier than beef. And the duck hearts in this chili just made all the difference. I still think about that chili. <laughs> but moving on. All right. Tongue. Um, not an issue with chicken, obviously, but if you slaughter beef or you buy it by the side, you're going to have access to the tongue. The tongue is also just an extremely well-used, tough muscle. So it's a lot like the heart in that regard, but it's mild in flavor. Uh, the tongue is a great 
great braising cut. It becomes wonderfully tender if you cook it low and slow with a little bit of moisture and then peel off the tough skin that surrounds the tongue muscle while the tongue is still hot. So you can absolutely add tongue to beef stock or uh, pork tongue to pork stock or whatever. But because I think that the meat from the tongue is quite excellent on its own, I would pull the tongue from the stock pot once it's tender and, and get that meat out of there so you can use it for something like chipped beef uh, or sloppy joes, something like that. Now, feet from poultry or hooves from beef are both extremely rich in collagen. And when collagen-rich parts and pieces are simmered in liquid, the collagen turns into gelatin. And gelatin is what gives the stock body. It also makes it so that when the stock is cooled, it'll even set up like a meaty jello mold. You guys have probably seen this where you take your pot of stock and you put it in the fridge overnight to cool and in the morning you could almost bounce a spoon off of it because it's so thick. Well, that's the sign of a really great stock that's just chock full of gelatin. And one of the ways to bump up the gelatin component of your stock is to include things like uh, feet and hooves that have tons and tons and tons of collagen and connective tissue in them. So if you have uh, poultry feet or beef hoof, something like that. Just wash it really, really well. Maybe even blanch it first. Definitely throw that into the stock pot. That's a great addition. Okay, last and maybe most oddly, brains. Now, throughout the world, brains are eaten as a nutritious delicacy. I personally do not eat beef brain because of the possibility of prion contamination that could lead to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which I'm sure you guys know is basically the human version of mad cow. And that said, even if I did kind of roll zombie style when it came to beef brains, I don't think I would add brains to stock. Brain tissue is very very high in cholesterol and mostly fat. So my concern is that long simmering brains in a stock pot would result in more greasiness than flavor extraction. However, I fully admit to not being an expert in the culinary uses of brains. So if anyone has more info, leave me a comment and tell me what you think. Are brains good to add to stock? I don't know. Okay, Andrew, so there it is. A couple of innard parts and bits you can absolutely use with your stock and a few you should probably stay away from. I hope that this helps. I'm glad to hear that you're trying to use up as much of the animal as you can. I think that that's what we should all be doing if we choose to eat meat. One of the great things we can do to honor the animal that gave its life for our delicious dinner is to not waste. So I love the spirit of this question. I think it's wonderful. So hopefully you've got a little bit more information information to go on now and maybe a few new ideas for ways that you can use some of those organ meats. Andrew, thanks so much for the great question. And Jack, of course, as always, thank you for making the Survival Podcast available to all of us, your listeners. And um, I will talk to you guys next week. If you want to come say hi between now and then, I'm at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Talk to you later. Uh, my short version of a follow-up there is when it comes to using liver uh, in, in stock, uh, I tend to agree that if you were to like save up a, a big tub of livers and dump them into a, a stock pot and use them as a main component in your stock, it would get too much minerally flavor. And uh, it's generally not widely appreciated. Like Some people like it, but a lot of people don't. If you're the only person eating your stock and you like it, fine. Um, 
let's say when I'm making up chicken soup and I have like I bought two chickens and I've parted them out and I have their carcasses and uh, you know what's left of it and I throw that into the stock pot. Two chickens worth, you know, I'll throw two chicken livers in there, two gizzards in there, and I'll just I'll just make them part of the stock. And I pull them out uh, when they're done. Uh, specifically, the liver I'll pull out kind of early, probably after about an hour in the stock pot. The gizzard will stay till the end because it's tough. And I cut that liver up and give it to the dogs. I am not a liver fan, but I think it's fine in stock. My other big use for liver is in sausage. I've mentioned this before, but um, when I make sausage, using as much as 10% of the weight of the sausage in liver Uh, or even a little bit more, is pretty outstanding, and it doesn't taste like liver. You don't notice it. It adds something that's hard to explain. It's not real minerally. Uh, we did up, I think, like 120 pounds of sausage uh, between the two pigs. We slaughtered at Perma Ethos, and I put both livers, both pig livers, into that sausage. And everybody that ate that sausage said it was amazing, uh, including a lot of people that when I told them there was liver, and they're like, really? I didn't taste any liver. I don't like liver. I'm like, well, you like it that way. So... Uh, I, I'd say that's a, now the one place I take exception is this heart thing. Stop grinding up hearts and putting them into ground meat, Erica. Stop doing it. Um, if, I mean, if you like it, go ahead and keep doing it. And I could see the place for it if it makes really good chili and what have you. But all one need do with a heart, if it's a small heart like a bird heart, is just cut the very top off where those you know ventricles and stuff stick out. If it's a larger heart, you kind of have to cut it up and cut out some pieces. And I can't get too much into that today. Um, and then onion, garlic, butter, <laughs> uh, in a, in a, in a frying pan, uh, a little bit of celery is nice too. Just a little bit of fine chopped celery in there. Uh, soften those vegetables, get your pan hot, but not too hot, hot enough that when you put it in, it's going to start searing the hearts immediately, sear them, flip them, sear them on the other side. Don't cook them completely through. It's okay if they're a little bit uncooked in the middle. Again, just like Erica said, this is like a little steak. And uh, deglaze with a little red wine and, and toss some mushrooms in at that point. Serve them just like that. Um, my God, if you do that with heart, you'll never want to grind one up again. It's one of those things, the main reason people think that heart is tough or lacks flavor, it's it, they, the same thing that's done with steaks all the time. Uh, you've overcooked it. You've overcooked it and you've ruined it, um, and you can you can always cook something a little bit more if you decided that you 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 didn't cook it enough, but you can never uncook something once it's been cooked. Keep that in mind when you're you know working with with meat especially. Um, so try sautéed with butter, onions, garlic, and celery hearts. Deglaze with red wine. Deglaze the pan with red wine. Cook your mushrooms until they're done to your liking, and then take the sauce and the mushrooms put them over the heart. Uh, bigger hearts, like goose hearts, I cut them in half one time. So cut the little top thingy off, cut them in half. Uh, duck hearts, chicken hearts, and down, uh, just in a skillet. My, when, when I lived in Pennsylvania, we did so much dove hunting that by the end of the year, we had like half a chest freezer of dove breasts. And I would end up with this big gallon Ziploc bag full of dove hearts. It was enough to make about three times a skillet full of dove hearts. And you sit there eating with a toothpick. It was one of my great pleasures in life. Sorry I have to throw all that in there, but I don't want hearts going to waste in crowd meat. Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and take a question for Brian Black, my good buddy over at ITS Tactical. Brian from Listener Morgan, I have seen thermal viewers for smartphones, and they look cool. Is there any tactical or home security niche these can fill, or are they still just toys at this point? So, uh, Brian, what say you on that, man? 
Hey, TSP, this is Brian Black answering an expert counsel question from Morgan, who writes that I have seen thermal viewers for smartphones and they look cool. Is there any tactical or home security niches that these can fill, or are they just still toys at this point? So um, the first thing I wanted to mention, uh, aside from thanking Morgan for the question, is that uh, one of our ITS contributors, Matt Sharp, wrote a pretty detailed review on Flitter One device that clips onto an iPhone. So for those of you that don't know, that's a uh, it's made by a company named Flitter that makes thermal devices, and it's a clip-on attachment for an iPhone. Um, the older iPhones had a actual clip-on that went on to the back of the iPhone, um, but now they make a smaller dongle, if you will, that clips into the bottom and mates with the jack at the bottom of iPhones. Um, but there, there are definitely some uh, some applications for these products. I mean, it's you know whether it's a novelty or not is obviously up to the end user. Um, but just to list a few of the of the uses that you could use thermal for, uh, you could use it for counter surveillance or even checking around your car in a dark parking lot. You could check the operation of IR cameras on your home security system. You could detect warm or cold air leaks for home energy efficiency. Um, you can determine overheating of just general electronic components or even check if a car's been running recently. Um, even finding uh, your lost dog in the in the dark, too. So um, one thing to note is that a complete absence of light will reduce the utility of it, and they have difficulty seeing past reflections in glass, too. So that's just uh, something to be aware of. They, uh, they detect the thermal property of the glass rather than technically what's behind it. So that's somewhat of a downside. But as I mentioned, it's up to the end user to kind of determine the, the viability of the product. But uh, they certainly have their uses outside the novelty of, of owning a thermal device. So um, I will make sure to pass along the link to that review that was put up on ITS to, uh, to Jack for the show notes. But um, hope that answers your question. And uh, I just want to say thanks again and keep the questions coming. And remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats www.itstackle.com. Thanks for having me. Dang it, now I want one. Now I want one. I always just looked at him as that, a novelty. I never really investigated him. Thanks, Brian. Uh, you have now accounted for more money going out of my pocket. I will probably get one of these things. Anyway, that's cool to know about, and I do think there's a whole variety of things we can do with that, and uh, I have my mind turning now about what we could do with some cool stuff with FLIR device. Anyway, um, let's go ahead and move on now and take another one I have now coming up for you, Gary Collins. This is an involved one. Gary said this was almost more of a consulting call than a listener question. This comes from John. John says, I'm struggling to get my blood pressure below 240. What non-modern medicine alternatives do you recommend for getting this under control? Backstory, three years ago I was 330 pounds and basically gave myself type 2 diabetes. I was officially diagnosed when I was 280 pounds about two years ago. Through primal and paleo, I have been able to get my weight down to 225, and I'm six foot three. Hey, who freaking raw, John? I mean, I'm so proud of you, and I won't say which John this is because I don't want to. I don't know if maybe he wants me to do that or not. But John, I am so proud of you. I really am. Uh, but I am one of the lucky ones, and that's in a little bit of uh, irony, sarcasm, who kept the diabetes despite my weight loss. I was on the 80-20 rule, but now I can't cheat. It's essentially I'm laid up about 36 hours after uh, with my blood sugar being so high. 
I've been to a doctor and they prescribe me metformin. Metformin gives me diarrhea and horrible stomach cramps and frankly doesn't seem to be working. I'm on a vitamin regime that is supposed to help, but it isn't. I don't want to be diabetic forever, and I don't want to use prescription drugs or insulin. Where do I turn? And then there was a whole bunch of information uh, that I won't read about the stuff that John is doing, what he's taking, his uh, his, his uh, nu nutritional regime, all that stuff. And, Gary, this is a tough one, man, uh, but I'm sure it's something a lot of people would want to hear about. So what do you say? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And today we have a great question about controlling blood sugar and type 2 diabetes. With that, I have to say my disclaimer, I am not a medical doctor, and I, nor do I play one on TV. So this advice is for educational purposes only, and you should work in conjunction with your doctor when changing your diet or exercise routine. Now to the question. Um, John has done a great job of losing the weight in the last couple years, and I consider his weight to be very uh, a good rate for where he's at today as far as his height. Um, he's having a hard time. His, his blood sugar is about three times what it should be, so it's around 250 when it should be 80 or below uh, for fasting blood sugar levels. And he's been trying everything, and it's not working, and his doctor wants to have him on a pharmaceutical drug in order to control his diabetes. And with that, I want to make this very clear as well. I'm a little, little bit different in the natural health field in the sense that I am not one to poo-poo uh, modern medicine and bash it uh, against just using natural medicine only. I like to integrate both approaches and use both to the best of their abilities. And there are some instances where you will have to take a pharmaceutical drug. There just is no alternative. Uh, the natural remedies will not work. This is rare, but it does happen. And I want people to be open-minded to that, that there are some things as uh, far as disease-wise that we cannot control through exercise and diet. There just are some things that it just will not work. So I want people to at least be open-minded to that fact that if you have this troubling health condition that you cannot get rid of and you've tried everything as a last resort, you may have to go on prescription medication. Um, with that though, with what John's doing, um, I would recommend a different regime than uh, a regiment than what he's doing right now. And I think he's taking, John, I think he's taking too many supplements. I just, uh, some of these do not make sense to me. I don't want to go through the whole list, but one of the big red flags that came out was where you're getting them from. A lot of them are from CVS and the CVS brand. No, absolutely not. Uh, you guys have heard me discuss this before. The supplement industry is just as bad as a prescription drug industry. It's very hard to navigate, but you should never buy supplements from that are Walgreens brand, Costco brand, Walmart brand, avoid those like the plague. They are garbage. And not only are they garbage, but there's a, a good chance that they're actually going to be more harmful than good. That's how bad they are. Um, not to just, uh, you know, promote my supplements, but I do have a, uh, my own supplement line and I have actually a supplement regime that actually fits very well into what 
what uh, he's trying to do as far as lowering blood sugar. Now, with his exercise, it sounds like he's getting proper exercise. Everything's going right. One thing I will warn people about, if you're pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, you cannot drink. Alcohol's out. Alcohol is a very high, quick-reacting sugar. That's how you need to look at alcohol. And it will raise blood sugar levels. So if you're struggling with this condition, you have to take all grains, all alcohol, and all sugar out. And it appears that uh, he's definitely uh, insulin resistant, which is is a problem, which would tell me he has a – John has a carbon tolerance. And with a carbon tolerance, this is individuals who cannot – adequately digest carbohydrates and what happens is it just and utilize it for energy so it raises their blood sugar very very high we're not real sure the reasons why it's just it's like any intolerance they just don't have the ability to process carbohydrates correctly with that you may want to look into a carbohydrate enzyme there are some digestive enzymes out there that will help you uh, process carbohydrates, but I would recommend that you just instead cut them out. Um, that is the better solution. Not all, but I mean, you got to be very careful. I would stick to stay away from starchy carbs. I would stay away from even sweet potato, potatoes, definitely rice is out, beans is out, all that's out. All the normal villains in the paleo diet are out. With that, my, my, uh, I have an optimal health supplement package and it contains all the things I think John should be taking and one thing I also noticed that is definitely missing is probiotics in his supplement regimen which probiotics are incredibly important to proper digestion and the breakdown of sugars and carbohydrates and it's not even in his his regimen at all and I'm like huh that doesn't make any sense so my my package has it will have get the men's package John if you're looking for it I have a men's and women's but it has the one daily multivitamin, which will give you all your vital micronutrients to help control, which will help control blood sugar. I have the organic greens, again, which will again help control blood sugar. And then concentrated omega-3s, which have been found for people who are type 2 diabetic to definitely help lower blood sugar. Vitamin D3 is essential. Make sure to get out and get out in the sun. Probiotic. And here's a couple things I'm going to throw in here that are not on your list here, which kind of blow me away, turmeric. Turmeric is the last supplement in my package. Turmeric is an adaptogenic supplement as far as it's a spice that works very well controlling blood sugar. It's highly anti-inflammatory. That's why I take it. I take it for my after my back surgery and I still take it. And not only that, but you can add it to your food. You can go out and get powdered turmeric. Make sure it's organic. That's another thing I'm, I'm seeing missing in here are some organic things. Um, also stay away from the diet Coke period. That's out. I know you've been dabbling in that as well and trying to get away. You have to get away from that. That is one guaranteed way to raise your blood sugar, even diet Coke. The, the artificial sweeteners <clears throat> in diet Coke have been shown to increase your, uh, your probability for type two diabetes and insulin resistance. They're actually can be, can be considered during, depending on what study, Worse than normal sugar. Cut all artificial sweeteners out. They're done. Um, also, proper exercise is important, so make sure you do that. 
And one supplement I would add on top of my optimal, and don't take this, these supplements in conjunction with what you're taking. You need to stop taking that supplement regimen and go to this one and try it for a couple weeks and see if you notice a difference. Ginger. Ginger in some studies has been found to reduce blood sugar up to 35%. Ginger has a lot of the same properties as uh, turmeric. It's in the same family. So I would do that as well uh, and maybe even play around with apple cider vinegar. Uh, just a capful mixed with some water. Do not shoot this stuff straight. It is highly acidic and it will burn your esophagus. So don't take this stuff straight. Dilute it down, maybe even into 8 to 12 ounces of water and just pound it down. Um, cinnamon. Cinnamon is one of the simplest natural foods. Make sure it's organic again to lower blood sugar. A half teaspoon a day is the recommended amount. I use ginger every single, or uh, ginger and turmeric actually, and all and uh, cinnamon. I use them all every day, and that would also be a good one to try. That's natural. Eat a lot of broccoli. Broccoli has a, a prebiotic and it has a lot of magnesium. I want you to get your magnesium sources from vegetables. Magnesium is a little tough when you take it in supplemental form. Uh, it can make you drowsy. I shouldn't even can. It usually does. It'll take your energy away. So the best time if you're going to take magnesium to lower blood sugar is at night. Or if you have trouble sleeping, magnesium is a great supplement to help you sleep. Powdered is the best for sleeping and take it about 30 minutes before you want to go to bed. Um, I think one last thing I would add is drinking green tea, sweetened with stevia if you're going to sweeten it. You can also put cinnamon in that, and and also I would use either a teaspoon of organic raw butter, or preferably I would have you use a little teaspoon of coconut oil. Uh, green tea has been found to lower blood sugar too, and this is going to work in two ways. It has a ton of antioxidants, will help with the inf inflammation process in your body, which I definitely feel you're suffering from. And with that, it'll give you a little boost in energy. And it's a vasodilator because of the natural caffeine. Don't overdo it. I would do two cups a day, preferably with meals, and that should help lower your blood sugar. Gosh, I'm running long on time. This is a very complicated question. But one last thing would be also fasting. Read my article on intermittent fasting on my website. Just do the search. It's in there. I also have it in my book, Change Your Body, Change Your Mind. I have a big piece on intermittent fasting and how to do it correctly. Fasting is one of the best ways to lower blood sugar and to get uh, your blood sugar within normal ranges and in check. It, it's the way the body works. So I hope that helps. I know this was a lot of information, but if you have further questions, just make sure to email me or Jack and we can go further into this. Thanks. Well, really great advice from Gary, um, and I'll tell you what, I just ordered his total men's health package. I don't have type 2 diabetes, but I'm going to give it a shot. I'm not on any supplements right now, and I'm going to give it on a shot and see how uh, it affects me after using it for a month. And I saved 10%. I saved 10% because I'm a member of my own member's brigade, uh, so that was 12 bucks. Uh, just uh, an example of how MSB puts money back in your pocket. And different things work for different people. I think this would be a good good uh, set of advice for, for John to try. Uh, if you're having health issues, you know, talk to Gary. The other people you can talk to are doctors nutrition that also do discounts from the MSB that take a different approach to figuring out, you know, what supplements to use, where, when, and how uh, by using lab work. And I think some people are comfortable with that approach. Some people want a more, 
just, hey, this is what all guys should be taking. Gary also has a woman's formula like that. So I think that you, you can pick and choose from our audience. So I know when people hear a person ask a question about nutrition, they say, well, use my product. But you, you heard Gary give the scientific reasons behind it. And I think we all need to figure out works, what works for us because we all have different bodies. So uh, realize there's a lot of help available in the TSP community for things like this. And I'd like to thank Gary uh, for, that, for that great piece uh, there because that was complex. I almost didn't send it to him. I almost went, this is too much. This is like something for um, a holistic health practitioner or something like that in ND uh, to be doing. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, hit a home run with it, man. So thank you, Gary, and uh, look for an order for me in uh, today's order queue. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. This time for Nick Ferguson. It says, from Christopher, Nick, what do you think of this DIY milker for goats? Seems like this would be good for homesteaders. And it's a, a, a jar, a little vacuum pump, and some syringes and some tubing adapted, and you stick this on the goat sutters and turn it on, and milk comes out and fills the jar, like one of those fancy expensive ones. But it looks like something you can make for a few bucks. I will have a link to it in the show notes. I also have a link to uh, Gary's article that he just mentioned in the last segment, as well as the uh, Men's Total Health package in the show notes as well. Uh, but, yeah, check out this video if anything that Nick or I say about this here doesn't make any sense to you. It seems kind of cool. Nick, what do you think? Hey, Christopher. So the mason jar milker. I've used a version of this, and I did some research a long time ago into, the, into their mode of operation, and after more than two decades of experience with dairy goats, I don't like them. I can milk into a jar just as fast as that machine can. I keep muscle tone in my forearms and some good grip strength, and the milking motions you use are actually great training and strength exercises for weapon retention, just an aside. So, I kind of need to explain the differences between milking methods. Constant vacuum method, like you're talking about, is completely unnatural. When a kid, the baby goat, nurses, they use their tongue and some decent suction to both squeeze and pull milk out of the teat and into their throat. They use a pulsing, pulsing action because they are swallowing, and it naturally allows the milk orifice, that hole <clears throat> the milk passes through, to exit the teat. It allows that milk orifice to rest for just a split second. This is the natural way a goat is designed to work. When you milk by hand, you're using much the same process. You're using pulsing pressure on the teats to squeeze the milk out, and since your hand needs a slight rest, you pause between pulses, and this also allows the orifice to revert to its resting state that is closed and not under pressure. When you use a constant vacuum like this, you're not allowing blood flow through the skin of the teat, and you can even burst blood vessels with a constant vacuum. It's kind of like the teat tip gets a nasty hickey. You can even blow out the orifice and invert it, allowing bacteria to enter the udder, which will cause mastitis. Um, and that will take a goat out of production until she gets better in the best case. And the worst case is you can actually kill an animal with mastitis if you just let it go. So now, don't let me freak you out. I'm not saying that if you use this thing, you're going to kill a goat. Um, I just want you to understand all the risks and dangers so you can decide for yourself how much you are willing to risk. With all that negative stuff said, if you want to use this milker as a prep for eventual times when you need an unskilled person to take care of your animals, or if you injure your hand, or for whatever reason, you need to use this machine for a short period of time, even a few weeks, go for it. Um, I would try and only use it when absolutely necessary. Those constant vacuum devices will shorten the useful lifespan of a milker, and over time, they can actually and likely will cause some harm to the animal. But 
I would keep it on hand just in case. See what I did there? Hand milking. Wah, wah. Anyways, I hope my answer helps you decide whether or not you milk by hand or use a machine. For more info about me and what I do, head on over to permacultureclassroom.com. Remember, I'm going to be traveling from Louisiana through Mississippi and staying in North Alabama with some friends for a few days the weekend of the 12th. So if you're kind of on that route or anywhere in that region, if you've been needing or wanting some pro-consulting or just a little guidance on what to do next on your homesteading adventure, email me at permacultureclassroom at gmail.com. I'd love to help you out. Guys, I love all the permaculture, small livestock, homesteading, and gardening questions. Keep them coming. I'm Nick Ferguson, and you have a great weekend. Like I said, I, I thought it was pretty cool, but I figured Nick might have a different take as a guy that's been working with goats for as many years as he has, and, and, and I, I have not. Um, I guess that my view would be that this would make sense if you know how to properly do it. For people that don't have the dexterity for one reason or another in their hands to, to milk manually anymore, uh, or for people that might employ someone to do work for them, uh, that may, they may not have time to teach. However, apparently this has to be taught very well. Um, as well, there are, and I was surprised I learned this from Nick. There are, you know, professional milking machines that are sized down for goats and, and, and what have you. So I guess that would be another option. But, um, this is why we have an expert council. I know a whole bunch of shit. I know almost nothing about goats except, uh, they're kind of cool. They taste really good when you eat them. I like to drink goat milk and billy goats stink. That, that's, that's, and, and what I learned by interviewing Nick about goats. That's it. So that's why we have an expert council. So keep the questions coming for the expert council, guys. Remember, email jack at the survivalpodcast.com, subject line TSP expert. Then my question is for expert council member, fill in the blank. My question is one to two sentences maximum, return, 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 details. That will be most likely to get you in front of one of the expert council members. Um, on that note, we have a question for uh, Darby Simpson. Uh, Darby, this is uh, from listener Anthony. Darby mentions uh, issues with putting pigs on trailers. I'm three years into raising pastured pigs, and I've had the same issue. I've never had any luck with loading pigs on trailers to take them to the butcher. I end up usually having to dispatch them in the field and having the butcher come to my homestead to field dress them. I would be, it would be much more economical to take the pigs to the butcher. How did Darby solve this issue? Darby, of course, is a full-time uh, multi-generational farmer, and one of his specialties is pastured pork, so I just bet you he's got an answer to this one. Hello, Jack, and hello, TSP. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Anthony's question about loading pigs. Um, Anthony, I gotta tell you, one of the hardest things I had to figure out how to do early on was, uh, was loading pigs into a livestock trailer easily and without a whole lot of stress. And, um, you know, that, that took a lot of experience and it took a couple, three years to figure out, uh, how to, uh, outwit the pigs and do it in a low stress manner. Um, but I tell you, we've really figured that out. And what used to be one of the most difficult, longest, tedious, uh, processes on the farm that incited a lot of anger, frustration, and choice four-letter words is now one of the quickest, easiest, uh, and, and fastest things I do. Um, so, you know, what, what we, uh, started out doing early on, 
um, when we were just using portable net out in the woods, uh, as we would back the livestock trailer up to where the uh, the portable netting uh, came together, and we would, uh, you know, uh, pulled the netting apart and kind of put it up to the size of the livestock trailer, and then we would just try and kind of usher the pigs in there. And you know, sometimes that worked, and sometimes it didn't, and and most of the time it didn't. Um, and then what we started doing after that, uh, and something that that you can do too, is you can actually kind of construct a, a little um, uh, loading corral using hog panels and T posts. And by that, at, regardless of where you're raising the pigs at, if you're using portable netting or if they're in a you know kind of a fixed area, if you're r- running them out in the woods in high tensile fence like I'm doing, uh, you can you know back your your uh, livestock trailer up uh, to wherever your gate is, or you can make a gate with the netting, and you can take uh, you know. T- uh, two or three panels and kind of build a little box off the, the back end of your livestock trailer. And this gives you something physical that you can work with the animals inside of. Uh, I mean, it's not impenetrable. They could knock it down and get out of it. But, you know, you put your T-posts up and you put those in the ground pretty well and then you, you put your hog panels up and you secure those uh, with twine or rope or something. You tie it off really well. Make sure it's not just going to fall over on you. And then you can you can get your pigs up there and you can uh, use a buckboard or a loading board, a herding board, whatever you want to call it, to uh, you know to get the pigs up into the trailer. And it's better if you have two people on two of those boards. So that, that's kind of the process I used early on. And what we've done is we've refined that. And, and what we do now is uh, what we want to do is we want the pigs to auto-load. And the, the, the fastest way to get a pig to do anything you want it to do is to do it through its its belly. So, uh, for instance, most of my pigs go to the butcher on on Tuesday morning. So generally speaking, I'm loading them up, you know, Monday afternoon, Monday night, and I'll haul them down there Monday afternoon or first thing Tuesday morning. So we'll kind of work backwards in time here. Um, we use large hog feeders, and we keep those pretty well filled up so the pigs have plenty of access to food. And what what we've done is we kind of set those hog feeders up by our gates and our paddocks out in the woods. And so when it's time for me to load pigs, what I'll do is maybe about Saturday – uh, is I'll make sure that, you know, on Friday or Saturday, that big hog feeder is going to run out of food. And I'll then use some, some poly tubs, and I'll put those up by the gate um, uh, next to where my trailer is going to be, and I'll start feeding them, uh, you know, with with the grain just out of those, those tubs on, you know, like Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And I don't let them starve to death, but I give them less feed than what they would normally eat, and um, you know, so by the time you know Monday rolls around, they're they're, they're pretty stinking hungry. And um, then what we'll do is, you know, we'll open the gate up, and we'll we'll have our trailer all set up, and and uh, uh, we'll we'll actually take those poly tubs and we'll put them into our loading area. And you could do this if you're using hog panels. And what I actually have now is a, is a loading corral, which I'll talk about in a minute with with gates. Uh, we actually uh, put those poly tubs in that little loading corral. It's 12 feet by 12 feet, and we open up the livestock trailer, and uh, we'll pull the food in there, and we'll put some food in the trailer, and we'll just kind of keep you know moving the food, and the, the pigs just follow it. And once we get the ones we want in the loading corral, we close that gate, okay? We put all the food up in the trailer, 
and uh, the pigs just hop up into the trailer going after the food. Uh, we kind of raise the, the front end of the trailer so that the back end is pretty low so that they don't have much of a jump to get up into the trailer. Pigs don't like going up, you know, uh, uh, making a high step to get up into anything. So we, we want the back end of the trailer as low as possible. Um, but when they're hungry and you put that food in the trailer, they all get in there. And, but that's okay. Um, we can close the door behind them. We've got a two-compartment trailer. We can kind of sort the bigger ones to the front and then slide the back door open and let the little ones out. And, um, you know, you, you, you got some compartmentalization that way so you can get your, your bigger pigs you want to haul off, uh, you know, into the trailer and let the little ones out. But that's the main thing is to, uh, you know, make sure that they're they're good and hungry. And they'll get into the trailer on their own accord and this is like there's no stress this way whatsoever um it, it keeps them calm which is really important before you haul them off to the butcher and it just makes life a whole lot easier for us so like i said no matter what you're using uh you can do this with with a electric fence but it's really better if you use at least some hog panels so you've got a physical barrier that you can kind of open and close and and get the the pigs in there if you have time and you can set your trailer up start feeding the pigs in the trailer you know three four days a week whatever uh, ahead of when you're going to take them to the butcher and just get them used to going in there and if you're feeding them out of a bucket going into the trailer every day they're just going to follow you in there by the pied piper at the end of you know three or four days so um now what we've gone to using here at my place and this this is really a, a big benefit to me is is this little loading crown i just want to kind of define that for you so uh you know coming out of our paddocks in the woods we've, we've got this 12 by 12 um, area, if you can imagine, you know, four large fence posts that are make a 12-foot square, and then we've got, on three sides, we've got a 12-foot gate. One of those 12-foot gates opens up into where the pigs are at. And then where I back up the livestock trailer to, I've got what are called split gates. I'll have two six-foot split gates. And we back the livestock trailer up hard to one side. We take one split gate. We push it out of the way. We take the other one, and we actually secure it to the livestock trailer. And uh, so now I've got this fixed 12 by 12 area, and this is what I was saying. You can kind of do the same thing with some hog panels, but we've got this fixed 12 by 12 area. We open up that gate into where the pigs are at. We put their food in there, and then we lock them into this little 12 by 12 corral. We let them eat for a few minutes and settle down, and then it's pretty easy for one or two people to take some herding boards and load them up into the livestock trailer. So uh, that's how we do it here, Anthony, and it took me a lot of years and a lot of frustration to figure that out. And uh, the fact that I can give you all that information in just six or seven minutes and save you years of frustration is, is pretty amazing. So I'm glad to share it with you. Hope it works out. Shoot me a note. Let me know um, how that pans out for you. As always, Jack, thanks for letting me come on the show and share a little bit of wisdom. Uh, for anybody that's interested, you can check out my website at DarbySimpson.com. i got a lot of free how-to articles out there uh, on all aspects of farming. And for those of you who are interested in going deeper, I also offer one-on-one content consults about uh, how to farm for profit. Everybody have a great weekend and thanks so much. Take care. Great stuff from Darby and I, I can only imagine trying to get, you know, 25 pigs on a trailer any other way. Uh, it sounds very similar to what Mark Shepard does. Mark does pretty much what Darby said kind of in the second half there. Uh, he just starts feeding them on the trailer. Uh, when they get closer. And he also whistles to them and whistles them up every time he feeds them. So they get to associate a sound with uh, with food. So, you know, you whistle them up, throw the food on a trailer. And they might be a little apprehensive at first. Sooner or later, hunger takes over. They get in the trailer. And we could do that. And they just whistle and they go in the trailer. And I, I think it's important 
Uh, one of the things Darby said there, and, and Mark's made a, a, a point about this as well, to keep the stress level down, to keep the stress level down for the pigs. Uh, that is that is so important that we keep that stress level down for the pigs. And uh, so doing it that way keeps that stress level down. The last thing you want is lots of, of stress hormones coursing through an animal uh, right before it's, it's put down. You want that animal happy, go lucky, no idea. Um, Mark uh, is fond of saying his animals have one bad day. Uh, I think he's actually underselling it. I think when you do things the way Darby does, the way Mark does, the way I do on my homestead with my ducks and, and what have you, they don't have one bad day. They have one bad second. And I think that's, that's, that's incumbent upon us. If we're going to you know, produce and eat meat and, and say we're doing it ethically, that should be our goal, that that animal have a bad second. Uh, and if you do it right, they don't even know they had it. Uh, I've also put it this way. Uh, when, when, I, when I kill an animal on my farm, that animal has the worst moment of its life, which is its death. And I try to make that as, as quick and efficient as possible. But that's the worst thing that's ever going to happen to that animal, is that it's going to die. On a factory farm, I believe that an animal's best day is that moment when it dies. I think that's the only thing a lot of these animals have to look forward to, the way that they're taken care of, if you call it taken care of. The way they're, they're treated is, is abysmal. Um, I think if the average American knew how the animals that they consume were actually treated and had to confront it, that we'd see changes in the way animals are, are cared for and produced really, really fast. And yeah, it might cost a little bit more. But can you put a cost on ethics? Can you put a cost on compassion? I guess you can, but like Erica said in her question, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. That's my thoughts on that one. Moving on from there, let's uh, hear from uh, one of my favorite people in the world, Mr. Stephen Harris. Stephen has a question from Leslie in Alaska. She said, is methane as safe as propane for general energy needs, like gas dryers, stoves, and other appliances? And what do you need to think about in making your methane a component for an off-grid homestead as needs overall. Again, she's in Alaska, so heat would be a good thing, huh? She has three YouTube videos that she has as examples for Steve to look at. I have two of them in the show notes, not because I found anything wrong with the third one, but YouTube has taken the third one down due to the channel owner constantly republishing third-party information without permission. So I do have those two for you. And Steve, what say you about methane? Is it a lightsaber? Leslie in Alaska. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council calling in to answer your question. Thank you very much for providing such a good question for us today. Actually, the first show I ever did on the Survival Podcast was on biogas. And for any of you who want that, it's at the very, 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 very bottom of solar1234.com. I got all my old shows down there. All the newer, more popular ones are at the top. Now, biogas, a quick overview for you who do, do not know. If you take a bunch of poo and a bunch of organic material and you put it in a container and seal it up with only a little hole coming out of it, for the first three days it will go through aerobic digestion, which is digestion uh, with oxygen in the liquid. After the oxygen is depleted by the bacterial, uh, it will stop producing CO2, and it will start producing methane. This is called anaerobic digestion. So she's talking about does she want to store her poo in a liquid form and or with other organic material or manure from other animals to make methane 
which is the chief component of natural gas, in order to power her dryer and her stoves and other such things. Now, you asked me, is methane as safe as propane for stuff like gas dryers and stove and stoves and other appliances? The answer is yes. Methane, natural gas, is just as safe as propane for general energy needs. Uh, people on boats don't like propane because propane is heavier than air and it sits and it'll find the low point in the boat and it'll sit there until it gets a point of ignition and then it won't explode but it'll combust. Methane is lighter than air. You could fill balloons with methane. You could fly around the world. In fact, some people have. So when methane is released, it goes up and out. When propane is re- released, it goes down and in. Both are very, very safe fuels for anyone in the United States who wants to run their house on propane or natural gas. So let me get that out of the way. Now, you're asking me, and you sent me some very nice videos as references uh, about anaerobic digestion of biomass and poo in order to make methane. First of all, you have to understand the videos you sent me were from South Africa and from India. These are desert and tropical climates. You are in Alaska. Now, for those of you who don't know, the amount of biological activity doubles for every 18 degrees Fahrenheit you increase your temperature. So there's a big difference between... 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 30 and 106 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? It would be, I mean, 106 degrees would be four times the biological activity. 70 degrees would be one time the the biological activity. And in in Alaska, you're lucky to get 70 degrees. In fact, you can't even dig down and make a biogas generator in the ground because you have something called permafrost. So I do not think this is for you. For those of you who want to know more about biogas, if you go to knowledgepublications.com, which is linked through stephen1234.com, you will find a book called Biogas 1 and 2 and a book called Biogas 3. This is all about making methane and biogas through anaerobic digestion. One and two does it in simple drums. A 33-gallon drum up and up ended into a 55-gallon drum. Uh, the biogas three is how the Chinese did it. It's how they dig a hole in the ground, line it with brick. You pour in effluent. You get effluent and fertilizer out on the other side. You asked me if this was a good component for an off-grid homestead needs overall. The thing is, you mentioned gas dryers. Your anaerobic digestion system is not going to touch a gas dryer at all. It's not even going to begin to do it. It might be able to run the flame for an ammonium absorption refrigeration system. It might be able to run your stove for between one and three hours a day, depending upon how many people you have poo putting into the system. Uh, and in Alaska, it is going to be going to go very slow. So for me to tell you in Alaska, Leslie, uh, don't bother. If you're in the continental United States and you're in warmer areas of the planet 
Anaerobic digestion works very good, especially if you have barnyard animals. If you have horses, if you have cows dropping significant amounts of poo on the ground, you can take this and put it into a methane digester, and it will make methane, and it will probably easily take care of your cooking applications, as in you can run it to a stovetop type of burner, and it will burn, and you can cook upon it. Really, if you if you've got like a six-person family and you think you're going to make methane off of your own poo, you're not. Okay, humans just don't. <laughs> I'd like to say I don't give a crap, but the reality is humans don't crap enough in order to make a methane digester work. Now, a thousand-pound cow does, and you need to have several of them. Even a small herd of goats. A bunch of chickens, unless you're a, a chicken factory, no, don't bother. It's not going to be a component of your preparedness. So, to summarize, you got barnyard animals, you're in a warm area, methane digesters can make methane enough for you for cooking, or maybe even running an ammonia absorption refrigerator or freezer. Uh, if you're going to try to run your dryer and think it's going to be a lightsaber of, of bioenergy and methane, you are incorrect. It's not going to run your dryer and your higher need. It's not going to run your furnace. <laughs> it's not going to run your dryer, guys. So sorry. But, uh, Leslie, thank you for the excellent question. I hope I answered it for you, and I hope I answered it broad enough for those of you who are interested to uh, listen more, go listen to my first show I ever did with Jack at solar1234.com. It's on the very, very, very bottom. And you got Biogas 1 and 2 and Biogas 3 at Knowledge Publications, which is linked through stephen1234.com. And as always, everything I have done with Jack is at stephen1234.com. Um, so I'll backtrack a bit and say, hey, if you're looking at cooking, I think one of the easiest ways you are going to cook is going to be with a rocket stove. And I have, uh, if you took all the space that a methane digester was going to be and you filled it full of wood and you splintered the wood into kindling, which is what a rocket stove runs off of, you would do a lot more cooking than you would if you had a bio digester sitting there. The rocket stoves are at rocketstove1234.com, which is also on stephen1234.com. And for those of you playing the Stephen the 1234 drinking game, where you take a drink every time I mention 1234, you should be suitably inebriated by now. Thank you very much. for This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Hope to talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye. Stephen Harris, blunt, direct, to the point, accurate, and full of knowledge. Thank you, sir, as always, for that. Uh, let's move on to a question for Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's question this week, how does one best go about taking mead to the market as a commercial product? It is, best to get your, is it best to get your own license, or is it better to find someone in a business with a license already and work with them to build a labeled product? Michael would say you about taking mead from the car boy to the market boy. That sounded dumb, but I did my best. 
Mike, what do we do, man? How do we take our mead and end up with it in bottles on the stores, in, sh in bottles on, on store shelves? Let's get to it. Michael, does one best go about taking mead to the market and commercial products? Is it best to get your own license or is it best to find someone in a business with a license already and working with them to build a labeled product? Mead, one of my favorite topics. As you know, I am a craft mead maker. I'm working with a show called A Little Taste of Honey where we go and taste different kinds of honey and the mead that they make with it. So I have uh, many of my horns with me most of the time and enjoy a good glass of mead. So let's talk about mead for market. The commercial sale of any alcohol, you have to talk to the tax man. Alcohol, tobacco, tax, and trade bureau does not regulate the licensing of a person who makes retail sell alcohol, but you are required to fill out a registration form with the TTB called the TTBF 5630.5D and to maintain certain records and cite tax lines. Taxes is one of the biggest holdbacks for commercial sales, but easy to fill out. Each state also regulates business that sells alcoholic beverages. Alcohol businesses must comply with all state and local requirements in addition to the TTB requirements. So the list of the state alcohol reg registered agencies and the TTB stuff can be found. Some states cater to microbrewery places. I know that the feds are opening more markets and giving out smaller business licenses and exemptions to micro places for employment and tax revenue. So really look up the laws and see what works for you in the place that you live in. Once you find your state's local commercial sales and have got your TD, TTB stamp, you have gotten the big part done. The second biggest holdback is label approval. Best way is get a few bottles off the shelf, see what they look like, and go from there. Getting them and making one and getting approval is your next step. If you have any questions on labeling, licensing, state laws, and all that, your best bet is to get on TTB Internet Questions at TTB Government. Okay, you've got a great product to meet. You're getting your TTB stamp, label approved. You're either going to open a shop with the state's approval or you're going to find a place to distribute your product. I would enter a few contrasts. Provide uh, your meat at weddings and events where people do not really pay for the meat, but pay for the event where you'll receive some sort of compensation for the help you're providing with your craft. Uh, put some shows out there uh, to show your product. The reason for showing your product and doing these events is maybe you'll get picked up by a distributing agent that is looking for mead in their repertoire. Red Hook, Pyramid, even Blue Moon started this way and was picked up by bigger companies. With your tax ID and state license, you can brew lots of mead on the legal end. Try to get it into a bar or a place to, dis to display your product. Big Loss Meadery just got a contract to sell mead out of Albertsons in their local area. Hunter's Mood Meadery sells theirs at taverns at State Park. The Celtic Fest and Guilds are always looking for mead suppliers, and Sunlight Mead is listed in doing lots of events and using their mead for those events. Now you're rolling. You've got your stuff out there. 
some locations distributing your product. Now it's time to get it on the Internet. Hidden Legends Pure Mead it was really one of the first ones to get it on the Internet, and companies like Amazon picked them right up. Uh, so a new venue made by the feds will help you get your mead out there through the mail uh, by email. Uh, if you have to ship to people that sign on the dotted line that are saying they're over 21, uh, you know, kids these days. But uh, Internet sales are starting to come a little bit better, and then the feds are working with small breweries to do this. Uh, speaking of kids, uh, I'm working with a guy in Colorado right now with a meadery to make a cannabis mead. So I'm sure it will be an oddity mead that will sell. I make an Ibn Bon Shin, or what we call a bloated seed mead that has chia seeds in it that burst. And it's an oddity mead that I make, and I'm asked to bring it as gifts and uh, to events with my king's mead. You know, there's a lot of ways to get it out there, but look at your taxing. Look at uh, your venues of where you're going to sell it. Uh, I think it's best to just get your licensing and all your stuff and start ramping up your brewing. Age mead sells more, so by the time that you've got some mead out there to really sell and just do stuff, you've you've probably been to a few meaderies. There's a meadery in Montana. Uh, the gentleman's one of the artists, uh, oldest meaderies and can get you lots of information. Um, mead is an alcoholic beverage that if you try to sell it commercially, get your TTB stamp, get your state local licensing, and find out your local laws and venues and zoning to see how much you can brew like at your house or a shed or what you're looking to do. Once you find out your budgets, get your stamping and all that, I think it's best to try to just open it up and sell it from your house. I hope this gets you in your right start track to getting your meat out there. It's hard to ship meat to places, but, you know, there are agencies that will ship it, and putting beef feed helps on, on it. And, hell, if you want to exchange meat sometime, hit me up, and I'll uh, talk about selling you a 30-pound tub of honey with a little bottle of beef feed in it. This is the Bee Whisperer from the Bee Friendly Company reminding you, to get your honey from local beekeepers, shop at farmers markets, and help your fellow man. For one day, you might need help too. Hi, Jeff Lawton here. Uh, coming in from Australia early morning on a pretty cold, crispy morning here in the subtropics. Okay, and um, I've got a question here that extends from last week about. The same sort of thing about considerations people should make when designing a new home for a new build. Stuff like location and materials are important, but also positioning of rooms um, and things like solar aspect. Uh, But this time we're going to cover the hot and humid climates. Now, there's a transition between hot and humid of the subtropics over to the true tropics. The subtropics more or less have the same design aspects as the uh, Mediterranean through to the cool and cold climates in that it's a uh, solar aspect design. It faces the sun. Um, Your long walls are east-west and you have um, the percentage of windows on the sun side more or less equal to your latitude. So whatever your latitude should be the minimum of your uh, percentage of windows on the sun side. But the emphasis is uh, slightly less in some areas, although the design aspects are the same in that the living rooms and the rooms you live in, the kitchen, the dining room, 
the living room, the lounge room, they're all on the sun side. Is there warm rooms and living rooms and rooms that are light? Uh, maybe if you've got a st study or a studio, they're on that side as well. But then the shade side has your bedrooms, bathroom, cool room, uh, laundry, and possibly a mudroom, entrance room. But there's more emphasis as you go towards the hot and humid climates to have a shade house, kind of a nursery shaded area, on the shade side of the house and slightly uh, raised if possible. So the cool air can be vented into the house in the hotter emphasis in the summer. You've got a climate now that's hot in discomfort more than cold in discomfort. So your hot discomfort can be handled with, instead of a glass house, which is a bit over the top for these climates from the subtropics onwards, uh, you have a pergola on the uh, sun side, which has deciduous vines over the top of it. So uh, not fully enclosed, but shading that sun side with deciduous vines in summer and open to the sun in winter so that the sun can still come through. So your emphasis has changed from a glass house to a shaded pergola and you have more of an emphasis on a shade house on the south side to vent the cool air through. Hopefully the floor slightly raised, the misted atmosphere on that side is nice and, and cool and it will drop into the house for free. Um, there doesn't need to be quite so much influence on thermal mass, although it is some advantage in winter. Insulation in the outer walls now is going to insulate the cool in. So you're going to bank the cool in the thermal mass as much as bank the heat in the thermal mass, a bit like a desert climate, a bit like a, an arid climate. Banking the cool as well as banking the heat becomes an emphasis. And the insulation is holding the, the, the cool in summer, and the, um, the heat in winter. It goes both ways in those subtropical sort of Florida-type climates. Um, insulated curtains become a big advantage to insulate out the heat from those sunside windows. Ventilation out of the roof to exhaust hot air out of the roof. Um, but these things have to be switched from winter to summer. Uh, slight emphasis on cool in winter, more of an emphasis on heat in summer. Westerly wall is still a, a wall that you need to pay attention to because that gains a lot of late afternoon heat. Um, so you don't want any thermal mass there and a limited amount of windows. Uh, small windows on the, on the shade side. Most of the windows on the sun side. Can have reasonable windows on the east side. Uh, but um, west, you always have to pay attention to the west in any climate that is more heat stressed than cool stressed. Now, if you move over a bit further towards the tropics and you're in the humid tropics, it starts to change quite radically. And there is a golden set of rules for the tropics. Number one, you orientate to wind first. So your venting becomes the most important thing. There's a certain amount of venting that's needed in subtropics because you're getting towards tropics. But when you get to the true tropics, which means you're, you're getting close to 23 degrees or closer to the equator, um, orientate the wind first. Full shade between three o'clock, uh, between nine o'clock and three o'clock, the sun should not touch the walls of the house. So orientate the wind. Full shade between nine o'clock and three o'clock. Like your garden, there's, a, there's shade in importance during those six hours in the middle of the day. You're leaning towards climates now as you get towards the equator, 12 hours of sun and 12 hours of, of night. There's almost an equal sun uh, day and night um, time. 
sun rises at six, goes down at six quite rapidly. No thermal mass, no thermal mass in the house. Um, because you don't want any heat gain inside the house in the tropics. Orientate the wind, full shade, sun should not touch the walls between 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, no thermal mass. Outside kitchen, if possible, outside kitchen, because you don't want any extra heat gain inside the house. And the, ha and the kitchen needs to be one that you can wash down and insect-proof, often a little water trench around the outside, you can top some cooking oil on top of the water trench, top stops ants coming in. But um, you, you need a, a, a kitchen that's very easily cleaned, washed down, and everything's sealed because you're in the tropics. Um, the next one is uh, you need uh, safe water, uh, good roof water um, that's uh, insect-proof. Uh, you need a safe toilet, um, and um, you need insect screening. Yeah, because you're aiming towards climates that have insect, uh, mosquito problems, disease created by uh, um, mosquito, like malaria, dengue fever, Ross River fever, those sort of things. Um, so once you get there, you've got a reasonably comfortable house. You've got a house you can live in in the tropics. The wind vents right through it. The heat doesn't gain from the sun. You've got no thermal mass. Your kitchen's outside. It's not gaining heat in the house. You've got a safe water to drink, and you've got plenty of rain usually. You've got a safe toilet that's not going to give you cholera, which is usually a dry compost toilet, or at least a very well-done toilet that doesn't have leach fields that flood in, in, in tropical rains and bring fecal material to the surface. You have insect screening. You're in a beautiful tropical house. It usually has quite a high roof with overhanging gables to vent the wind, and raise the sun, uh, raise the heat inside the house up and out easily. So there you go. Um, you've gone from the, the subtropics and the hot, humid climates out to the tropics. Um, you're sitting pretty. You've got good design, and it's great talking to you here on a very nippy dawn in subtropical Australia. Great stuff from Jeff. And again, guys, I could use more questions for Jeff Lawton. We may have him round out this series next week with hot, dry climates. Um, but I might want to take a break from that. So get me your questions in for Jeff Lawton. Again, remember, for any of the expert council members, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com is the email. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. TSP expert in the subject line. And then give me the expert you're looking to get an answer from. Give me their question, one or two sentences maximum. Hit the return key. Give me the details. Like this, because this one has a lot of details, but the rule was followed. And hence, this question now is for John Pugliano from Listener Nick. John Pugliano, is there a good rule of thumb as to what percentage or ratio of one's assets that should be in solid, productive assets, such as one's business, and what remainder makes sense to keep in retirement account or other investments within the larger financial system? Details, I recently pushed back our family's business plans a year to grab an opportunity to take a good-paying job and greatly boost our family's savings in preparation for that eventual move to uh, self-employment. Currently, my wife and I both contribute a heavy amount to 401ks as a means to defer taxes and keep ourselves eligible for various tax credits like the child tax credit. We expect it is very likely that it will take two to three years to start seeing any appreciable profit from the business. So we are thinking of taking a few distributions from the retirement accounts during these extremely low-income years and thus pay little or no tax on said distributions, provided we keep the amount below our standard deductions 
and any available tax credits. I have much more faith in a tangible, productive assets than I do in a larger financial system, and I doubt that the retirement account rules will remain unchanged for 30 years or so until my retirement age. But at the same time, I'm not going to keep all my eggs in one basket, even if it's my own business. So with that in mind, is there a minimum value or recommended percentage of total assets that makes sense for the new entrepreneur to keep in one's retirement account? Thanks. Um, just want to say real quick here, if that was written unlike the formula I asked for, if it just started out and it was that one big giant paragraph I just read with no clear question at the beginning, this question would have not gotten through the spirit go filter. That is textbook when you have a complex situation, how to get through my filter. Anyway, John, what say you on this? Well, Nick, I don't have an exact rule of thumb for you, but let's walk through a couple things. First of all, I'd say when it comes to saving up money to prepare to start your own business, I take the advice that they give you when you're going on vacation. They say take half the clothes and twice the money you think you're going to need. So let's start out with that premise. The other thing to consider is your emergency fund. I encourage everybody to have somewhere between 3 to 12 months of living expenses saved up in an emergency fund that's readily accessible and is there in, in times of emergency when you need it. You never know when your transmission is going to blow out on your car, your kid's going to fall down and break a bone, or when things just happen. Now, when you're working a regular job and you're receiving a wage and a, and a crisis happens, you know, that's one thing. But when you're working for yourself, it becomes even more critical. So I definitely urge you to, to beef up whatever type of emergency funds you have. And then as far as distributing your funds, you know, how much should you have invested in your business versus how much should be in short-term savings versus how much should be in long-term retirement savings? And then taking that retirement savings out even farther as, you know, how much should be in equities or how much should be in real estate? Again, that all really depends and, and beyond the scope of what I can really talk about in the short time that I have. But I will say this. You mentioned that it's likely for you to take two or three years to start seeing any appreciable profit from your business. So you know you have a long road to hoe. It's most likely going to take you four to five years to really be replacing your corporate income, particularly when you think about all the extra benefits that you have by working for a corporation, you know, health care expenses, any, any retirement contributions that they would be putting away for you or matching, the payroll taxes that they're paying on your behalf, that 50% that they're covering to your Social Security and Medicare taxes is going to be coming directly out of your pocket when you're self-employed. So you know, that's probably something in the neighborhood of 15 16% right off the top. There's also going to be all kinds of unforeseen events, just like we talked about with your emergency fund. You know, things are going to take longer to, to fall into place. Getting the contracts in place with your uh, vendors and suppliers, you know, may take longer than you thought it would. Building up your customer base, again, it may take longer than you're assuming. So definitely put all your business plans and assumptions in an Excel spreadsheet and then start doing a lot of what-if calculations. You know, what if everything goes great? Fantastic. That's one number. What if everything falls apart? The economy's lousy. You don't gain as much traction as you think you're going to. You know, put those kind of numbers in. Make sure you're sitting down with your spouse and you're talking through all this and you're wargaming the worst possible situation. You know, it's likely that the first year you're going to run a big loss. The second year, you might come close to breaking even. The third year, you'll break even, but just a small amount. And so it's really that fourth and fifth year that you'll start to make a decent income. You need to make sure you're prepared for that, both financially as well as mentally. Everybody in the family has to be prepared to accept the sacrifices. You know, it's just not you and your wife. 
I'm not sure what ages your kids are, but you know, they have to buy into it too. They have to realize that, you know, Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, family vacations, those things are not going to be as good as they once were because dad and mom are sacrificing now for something that's going to be better in the future. And what a great lesson to be teaching your kids. You mentioned that you're pushing your plans back a year so that you can, you know, stay on a company payroll and increase your savings in preparation for your eventual self-employment. I think that's an excellent plan. The thing I'd encourage you to do along with that is to be starting your business now up in parallel while you're still working for your other full-time job. Even if you're not pursuing actual customers, there's probably legal things that you can put in place, relationships with your suppliers and vendors. Get all that out of the way while you still have a reliable paycheck coming in. The other thing to consider when it comes to quitting your job is, you know, it isn't an all or nothing thing. You know, try and consider to wean yourself away from that. What if you can work part-time? You know, what if you can work three-quarters of the time or 25% of the time? Even if it's not with your current employer, maybe you can get some contract work with somebody else. Or heck, maybe you're just delivering pizzas at night. But those first couple years of starting your own business are going to be really lean, and you have to do everything you can to maintain the cash flow to support your family's needs. Nick, everything I've been saying up to this point has been kind of negative and warning you about the risk and the precautions you need to take when you're starting your own business. But let me reassure you, you're doing absolutely the right thing. In my 30 years of studying middle-class millionaires and in my own personal journey through that process, I want to tell you that the number one best means to attaining financial freedom in America is by starting your own small business. And the great part about that is that it's not only the financial freedom, but even more importantly, it's the personal freedom that comes from that. So I commend you. I think you're doing the right thing. Follow your dreams. You and your family are headed on an incredible adventure that can be beneficial for not only you, but, you know, generations of your family into the future. So good luck with that. As to your comment on the limitations of your 401k program, I was having lunch the other day with a TSP listener, and I'll do a shout out to Thomas. He was showing me the structure of the new 401k plan that his employer is initiating. It was so restrictive, it not only had the standard limited options that we're used to seeing, but it actually forced you to make one of three or four selections, which then automatically diversified your savings into just a couple categories, like, you know, 50% stocks, 50% bonds, or 25% international funds, 30% domestic, and the rest in bonds. You couldn't individually opt out of any of the pre-selected funds. It was the most restrictive plan I've ever seen. I hope that's not a coming trend. Well, Nick, again, thanks for your question. Good luck to you and your family with your new business. If you'd like to hear more of my commentary on the stock market or general wealth building principles, please listen to the Wealth Studying Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. All right, I'm going to add one more thing to that. Um, if you have a business that's going to have almost no income for the first couple of years, this is my opinion, and there can be exceptions to this rule, but I think you need to look, take a good, dadgone hard look at that business and decide if this is really a business you should be in. It, it, it's one thing to start a part-time business, especially like an online one, and build a track record for a few months before you monetize it. I think that's a, a brilliant strategy. It's, it's what I did with TSP. But in the end, when we decided it was time for TSP to make some money, it made some money. Now, it didn't make walk away from my job, walk away from my career money in a day. It certainly did not. Um, but it made money. And if you are in something that can't make a profit for two to three years, you're not in a business. You are probably in something that is never going to make money. 
you should be able to get a business up to a reasonable uh, income flow in one to two years unless you're building a really, 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 really big capital-intensive business. If you're getting angel investors or venture capital money and you're getting rounds of funding and you're investing three or four million dollars in building a, a massive business uh, that is you know, in development of software or something like that or human capital development or something, that, that business has a clear delineated business plan that you know, two and a half million, three and a half million, four and a half million dollars uh, in total or a year are going to go into it over five years, but that represents you know a business that should be worth twenty five thirty million dollars that 's a different world if you 're in business with one or two people and that business isn 't viably producing a profit in a year, you have a problem so either the business is wrong or the plan for the business is wrong i don 't want to burst anybody 's bubble, but that 's the case. That's the truth. If you can't make money in a year, you're probably not going to make money in three. And I think it's actually highly dangerous in some situations to create a situation where you can pay yourself a salary while your business makes no money. Um, I think it's good to have the money there to go get it if you fail so that you can retool and readjust. But it should be every time you do it, it should hurt a little bit. Like, I don't want to do this. I have to do this now. It makes you way too comfortable, and it's why so many people decide to start a business and just defer taking any profit or any income from it for, let's say, six months while they're on unemployment, and yet, even though they have nothing to do but start that business, they fail. They're too comfortable. There's a monetary flow coming in. I gave myself a six-month deadline. Hey, I can get an extension, or I can go get another job if this doesn't work out. Business needs to be about making money. That doesn't mean compromising your ethics. It doesn't mean cheating anybody. It doesn't mean screwing anybody over. That's not what making money means. Making money means you tender enough value that can be seen and appreciated by the market that monetary exchange is a natural result of your performance. That's a business. Messing around for two or three years and making no profit is not a business. It is not a business. Now... Are there exceptions? Yes. Might your business be the exception? Yes. However, one of the exceptions in the minds of this audience is, well, I'm going to go put in trees and, and have a, an orchard or whatever. And Okay, if you've never done that before, that has to be, this is a, a sideline risk play for, for capital in the end. Okay, I know there's something coming out of this, but that can't be, I'm just going to wait three or four years for income. You have to make money and you have to make it now. In your business, or it's not a business, it is a hobby, and possibly a very expensive one. That's my addition to that one. And I, again, I hope I don't pop anybody's sales there. Um, but man, when I hear somebody say it's going to be two or three years with low to no profit, um, I just look at it this way. Let's say you came to me, and I was a capital investor, and you, you wanted money from me. And I said, well, what's your business plan? And you're like, well, we'll start making profit in, your, in month 36. Unless you have a team that's done it before, that's, that's, that's part, part of a larger operation like I talked about in the beginning, get out of here. You're not getting money from me. You're really not. You know, you have to be able to produce some level of profit in the beginning or your template for your business is losing money. I don't want to beat that up too much. And again, you may have an exception. You want to give me more details on it on the side, send them to me, and I'll tell you what I think about it, but be very, very careful. Uh, next question is for Paul Wheaton. Same question every week. Uh, tell us what's going on at the Dukedom of Wheatenburg and Wheaton Labs, sir. But now His Grace, the Duke of Permaculture himself, Paul Wheaton. 
Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories. And I'm going to try to do a different format with my report this week. Um, I don't know how it is that you're able to turn on a microphone and just talk into it, but of course, all the other experts seem to have no trouble with that at all. I've always struggled with it, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have Jocelyn help me today. <laughs> it makes it more fun. I'm your partner in crime. <laughs> okay, so uh, first thing to report is that the fifth ant has arrived. It looks like ants six and seven, so we'll have a total of seven ants real soon. We'll be officially announced soon. Uh, each ant, just as a reminder, each ant gets one raw acre of land. And this fall, when the snow starts to fly, we will find out who is really an ant and who is really a grasshopper. I think everybody thinks they're an ant until the snow flies. <laughs> and then they may be like finding out who's really an ant. Right. And we needed a minimum of six for the challenge. Oh, right. The Ant Village challenge is, is that somebody will get um, basically, you know, rent for life on their acre. Uh, and then everybody else can just, you know, anybody who doesn't win the Ant Village Challenge uh, can continue to rent it or convert it in a lot of different ways. But we've got all right. kinds of different programs to support people. Uh, and I don't think I've ever mentioned on Jack's show the greater vision of, like, why we do this, why we're shooting for this. The whole idea of uh, uh, infecting more brains, um, uh, leading innovation in permaculture. Like, what is the future of permaculture? And uh, so, how do we how do we get uh, a lot of innovators right next to each other, each uh, uh, being the great innovator and stealing ideas from the others? Well, and you like to call them artisans in seed and soil, too, uh, right. right? Yeah. yeah. I, I so I've got uh, what probably an hour long podcast just on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, one thing that has happened recently is we have a whole bunch of new bicycles here. And apparently there's a whole bunch more on their way, and they're all coming from Free Cycles of Missoula. There's a, So here in our local town, Missoula, Montana, the greatest town in the world, <laughs> uh, they, they've, there's a little place called Free Cycles, which makes sure that everybody in Missoula who wants a bicycle gets a free bicycle. And uh, uh, kids can just show up and get them. And adults, I think you have to put in like uh, five hours or something like that. I can't recall. But you have to help build bicycles for those who can't build them themselves. And then you can build one for yourself. Yeah, I think that they show you how to do it. They they teach you how to do it. And then you end up with a bicycle for yourself. And you end up with a bicycle for somebody who can't build one themselves, like a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's an amazing, cool program, and we're so a lot of our, a lot of the people that are here have been going down to free cycles, and we've been ending up with a lot of bicycles. So now we've got a bicycle in tents. We're gonna we're getting there, right? And and the reason why the bicycles are nice is because we actually have two pieces of property, um, and so a lot of the people are bicycling between those two pieces of property. There's that, and I think we're kind of ending up towards something where the property is kind of like Gilligan's Island, where everybody's <laughs> kind of getting around little bicycles and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is I think really cool. Yeah. But uh, and and Jack, you mentioned something about you thought that the lab or what we have here is 100 acres. We actually have 300 acres at the laboratory, and 20 acres at base camp. Right. Uh, but uh, and, and I want to emphasize, Jack, come on out to Montana. <laughs> yeah. I know you've been here once before, but boy, have we done a lot of stuff since you've been here last. Huge, <laughs> huge changes. Yes. Um, all right. I wanted to just take a quick moment to talk about um, what we call the poop beast system. And so, sorry, Jack. Uh, <laughs> I, 
I should have checked in advance. Is it okay to talk about poop on your podcast, Jack? Is that should I call it something else? <laughs> not. I mean, you know, in, in permaculture circles, it seems like this is something. Like you sit down and you have dinner, and then you end up talking about poop. <laughs> we, we do here, yeah. yeah. Poop and pee. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, uh, um, but of course, for a lot of people that are going out and uh, getting some raw acreage, and uh, even people who aren't, it's like there's also a lot of focus on returning the nutrients to the soil that ought to be there. Um, uh, composting toilets, humanure systems, I, both of those have serious problems. Uh, but, and I've got uh, two podcasts, Podcast 223 and 224, um, and that are my podcasts, um, where we go into a lot of detail of all these systems, including a focus on... Um, uh, uh, a sewage treatment plant here in Missoula because they're doing some really cool things here where they're taking a lot of the liquid effluent from the sewage treatment plant and routing it to cottonwoods and willows, which we call poop beasts. These are these are trees that actually groove on that extremely high uh, nutrient content. Uh, a lot of a lot of species of trees and other plants, when they when you get that high nutrient content, they shy away from it or get sick and die. But uh, um, there are certain species that'll just gobble it up. So uh, they're they're doing a lot of experimentation with that, and so the podcasts uh, uh, cover that. But they also cover all of the different types of ways you might deal with poop and how they're better and how they're worse. Uh, so we we talk about. Good outhouses, how you can make a really excellent outhouse, and how you how to make a really awful outhouse. Uh, we talk about septic systems and how septic systems are not really very good. There's and, a there's a recent study uh, from Michigan where they showed that septic systems were not protecting the rivers and lakes in Michigan. It was one of the largest watershed studies of its kind done recently, and those results were published that septics. Systems do not protect rivers and lakes like a lot of people think they do. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, they keep trying to make us spend 50 grand on a septic system to make it better than a $10,000 septic system. And it's like, you know, wow, now it's only 10% better than, you know, not that great. Uh, whereas, okay, then, then there's sewage treatment plants, which still, even though they keep making them upgrade the sewage treatment plants from being a $15 million structure to a $15 billion structure, it's kind of like still very problematic. They're putting a lot of that stuff out into uh, rivers, and uh, it's, it's a, just shifting the problems around. Um, and it, uh, then the composting toilets have been outlawed in a lot of counties across the United States for and for good reason. I mean, it's it's something that can be done wrong. And the humanure system, I've got some some real powerful objections to the humanure system. So um, I just want to describe real quick the poop bee system. And so then this is where we have a urine diverter. We uh, keep the poop, and uh, in our case, we're currently we're supposed to be wheelie bins, but our wheelie bins don't have wheels, so mm-hmm. I guess they're not really wheelie bins. Garbage cans. Yeah, at 32 gallons. Uh, just those really tough brute ones. Uh, I'd like to get away from plastic someday. I'm not sure how we'll do that, but um, in the meantime, though, so you get this container full of poop, set it aside for two years, then put it at the base of a poop beast. At two years of age, all the pathogens are gone. So everything that you're concerned about, about making people sick or whatever, 
gone. Now, there are <laughs> there are going to be a couple of exceptions, but it's like, yeah, if you live in the jungle, there is a there is something that you could get in there that lasts longer than two years, but we're not going to worry about that here. Um, anyway, uh, uh, that's that's the simplest possible description of it. I mean, there's a lot more detail to it, but uh, we don't we don't have a lot of time to go into it right now. But I just wanted to paint a quick picture. Yeah, less touching the poop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that summarizes it. Yeah. Okay, we're currently uh, under construction on some straw bale and cob stuff for the Wafati. And um, uh, Jack, I'd love to have you come out and, and play with uh, with all this stuff and, and give you the big tour and everything. And I'd, I'd like to – we're currently having people come out from the permies.com empire uh, to, to spend, like, you know, anywhere from three days to a week out here. And uh, um, uh, I think I think it might be cool to do something like that with Jack's peeps. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to have a bunch of TSP? We've had a lot of TSP people out here, yeah, uh, over the years. And um, but wouldn't it be cool if we had like maybe we should like line up a week and like during this week with a focus on a weekend. It's like TSP Central here. You know, we could have that'd be awesome. I mean, you know, Jack probably can't make it, but you know, a bunch of TSP people could meet each other and and things like that, and we could kind of have a thing. Yeah, <laughs> it could work. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should uh, make something up <laughs> and then check in with Jack. Maybe he maybe he didn't like that idea. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, last note is that we've got um, our Pyronauts event coming up early October. Uh, uh, October 7th through 9th will be our Tinker Circus, uh, and October 12th through 16th will be our Innovators event. We'll officially announce it in the co- next couple of days. Uh, people that want to find out about it when it happens, make sure to sign up at richsoil.com slash email. That's my dailyish email, and that's when we're, we're going to announce it when it's ready. We might be building uh, two tiny house rocket mass heaters and a rocket hot tub. You can also find out more in the thread at the Wheaton Labs thread at permies.com forums. That's it, Jack. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was cool, and I love having fun with Paul. And as far as uh, something going on there, I don't know whether I could get up there or not. It is difficult, and I have my own events to run and my own businesses to run and things like that. But I would love to do it, and maybe we could make it something kind of informal and just hanging out and what have you. Um it's going to have to be a while from now, though. Um, probably not this fall, definitely. And I don't want to go to Montana in the winter. So we're probably going to look maybe next year. But we'll talk to Paul backsides. And, Paul, if you ever want to do something like that and just say, hey, if you're from TSP, come up here and hang out. Hey, man, that's what TSP is all about. It's the larger communities, uh, the, the the subset communities off of it, everything from the, the Zello channel to the forum and everything else. Uh, I claim to have no authority or power over uh, this community. I'm just the guy on the microphone every day. Uh, Not just Paul, but anybody. You guys put together all the get-togethers, meetups, and things like that you can. If you let me know about them, uh, I'll let other people know about them for you. Uh, With that, let's go ahead and take a question now for Tim Glantz. Pretty simple question. This is from Tom. Tom asks Tim, what kind of radio can listeners use that would be license-free but can't easily be listened to by a third party. I haven't listened to Tim's answer yet, but I have a feeling I know what he's going to say. Let's see. Tim, what say you, man? Hi, Jack. Everybody out there in TSP land. This is Tim Glantz with Old Grouch's Surplus with an answer for a question. What is a good option for radios that are secure, can't be listened to, but don't require any special licensing? And what I recommend for those is a series of radios made by Motorola called the DTR series. 
the two models most commonly seen are the DTR-410 and the DTR-550. These radios take advantage of a band in the 900 megahertz range called the Industrial Scientific and Medical Band, or ISM, that allows low power use uh, for about anything that uh, a company wants to. And they use these, uh, they're able to use them in this band with all these other users because they use what is called spread spectrum. These radios actually hop frequency many times a second along a certain sequence. It's just the similar technology to what the military currently uses in their sync cars. And the result is that the only way you can intercept these is to have the same model radio tuned to the same channel set up with the same algorithm. And that uh, makes them extremely secure. No scanner made can listen to them. None of the software-defined radios out there on the market can be programmed to do it, uh, at least not with any available software right now. Now, if you just buy them out of the box and set them up, if somebody else has a DTR and they've got the same stock factory programming, then they can tune to the same channel and listen. But the programming software is out there, and you can buy a cable and program your own channels. Now that you've done that, nobody, unless they can figure out you know, the exact same channel combination you've got, and I think there's something like 64,000 different combinations you can program these for, uh, they would have to figure out the exact same one to be able to listen to you. So these radios are extremely secure, and they don't require any kind of licensing whatsoever to use in the USA. Typical cost is around the $250 to $300 range per radio, and I know that's high compared to what you see for a lot of these radios, but remember, this is Motorola. This is really high-quality, rugged stuff, and, and you're getting well well with what you pay for. Um, my experience on range disease is it's a little similar, maybe a little better than the family radio service, GMRS, you know, bubble pack radios you see. Uh, out in the open in typical rolling terrain, we're seeing one and a half to a little over two miles. Uh, where they do shine is if you're in an urban area and in buildings, the 900 megahertz does much better uh, carrying through that than the others do, so you get better penetration into buildings between different floors and stuff like that. So for anything else secure, if you want longer range or any other frequency ranges, uh, there's not really a license-free option out there other than trying to get some encrypted mirrors radios. But... To get mirrors encrypted and legal, uh, you're going to pay a lot of money, a lot more than these DTRs. So uh, check these DTRs out. Uh, you can get them on Amazon, probably the best place. I'm sure Jack will put a link in the show notes for them. And uh, for those options, uh, license-free, secure, can eavesdrop, and easy to use, uh, they are definitely the way to go. I've got several of them, and I've had really good luck with them over the years. And if anybody has any questions on them, just uh, hit me up in the show notes, and I'll definitely be watching. Thanks again for the question, and thanks for everything. And uh, You can also reach me through my website, of course, at oldgrouch.com. Well, that's what you tune into TSP to hear, huh, guys? How about that? Um, I had no idea. They are a bit pricey. The link I found for DTR-410s, I found a six-pack. It's like 1500 bucks for six of these radios. Once you're on that link, you can see all kinds of associated products, the other uh, model that Tim recommended, et cetera. So just, I put that link there just so you know what you're looking at, really. Um, it, they seem awesome. I don't know that I'll be adding them to my preps anytime real soon. Um, 
But if I was really dependent on radio communications and was worried about security, that sounds like one of the best ways to go. And it's certainly one of those things, you know, if things start to shift and change and, and I need to think about encrypted radio, um, especially unlicensed radio, I, I, I just consider that an incre incredible uh, knowledge arrow in, in, in the quiver of knowledge. I mean, that's awesome. Uh, that's something I've not heard before. And, uh, you know, if you're, if they're used by EMS, you know, you're talking about a quality device. Those guys are not going to be using junk. Uh, so just the qualities there alone. Now, this is your official warning that it's probably late in the day and you probably haven't eaten in a while and you're probably hungry. And we're wrapping up the show today with Chef Keith Snow with recipes for seafood and fish soup. Uh, this question, it comes in from Dan. Dan says, Chef Keith, I've recently had a really awesome, uh, Asian fish soup at a Thai restaurant. I'm interested in making things like this for myself. Do you have several different ideas for different types of fish or seafood soup, uh, that we can make at home? I'm craving the taste, man. What can I do? And, uh, Chef Keith, take it away, bro. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com, and I wanted to answer this week's question about seafood soup. So basically the question is, this gentleman had a seafood soup at a Asian restaurant recently and wanted some different ways to make fish and seafood stews and soups. Now, this is a, an awesome topic for me. Uh, I absolutely love different types of seafood soup and stew, and there are some notable ones to mention. Number one, um, going over to France along the coast of the Mediterranean is a little small port town, a very um, cool-looking fishing village, they call it, Marseille. And in Marseille, they're very famous for a soup called bouillabaisse or bouillabasse. And uh, I'm sure I'm butchering the, the pronunciation Nonetheless, this is one of the world's most awesome soups and it, or a stew, I guess you could call it. And what makes it special is it is flavored with saffron fennel. It has um, orange zest in it and lots of different fish, but more importantly, bones of fish. Now, they don't serve the bones in the final soup, but they use the bones and the heads to make such an incredible stock. Now, Bouillabasse is simply awesome, and what's really neat about it is when you get it, you'll see a, um, it'll come in a bowl, and it's very rich, and uh, it's a thing of beauty with that saffron in there. And they serve it with um, toast, with like a piece of, and I'm you know simplifying it, toast. It's a piece of bread, and they put something called rui, which is a garlic paste, and that has saffron in it too, a little garlic paste on top of it. So the whole thing is really incredible. And these um, fish and seafood type stews and soups are native to just about every cuisine in the world. Um, you know, bringing it over stateside and who knows where it originated, probably England, but you've got New England clam chowder. You go to the West Coast, San Francisco with all the leftists out there. You got chiapino, which is basically a seafood soup. So these are um, excellent. Now, you mentioned Asian, and uh, that got me thinking. Um, here is a way to make an incredible Thai fish soup. Now, I will put the recipe on harvesteating.com. And a quick shout-out to Dustin, who helped write up the uh, deer recipe that I mentioned on last week's show because I haven't posted it. I've uh, been really busy 
folks getting ready for the pasta sauce production. And while you listen to this, through the magic of pre-recording, I will be in a um, food plant uh, looking over kettles of my pasta sauce, making sure it tastes awesome at this very moment. So wish me luck. But here we go. Let's talk about a Thai-style fish soup. Now, some of the flavors of Thailand, coconut milk, ginger, galangal is something that's uh, it's a root, very similar to ginger, green onions, lime juice. All these things can make it unbelievable soup. The first thing you want to do is let's just say you you went fishing, you caught yourself a, ah, I don't know, maybe you're on the East Coast, you got yourself a striped bass, or maybe you're up in Alaska and you got a salmon or uh, a halibut. You need to make what's called a fish fume, F-U-M-E. Very simple thing. It's basically a fish stock, but this will dictate how awesome your soup will or will not be, the quality of the um, stock. Now, I would be very hesitant to go to the store and buy a bottle of clam juice or canned seafood stock because that stuff is pretty grim. Now, here's how you make it. You take your fish bones and the heads and you put those in a pot. You're going to want leek, cleaned leek. You have to be very diligent to clean the leek. Leeks, um, parsley, carrot, celery, um, onion, a couple of peppercorns, you put those, uh, the, the fish bones in there, cold water to cover, cook it for about, I don't know, an hour and a half with a, you know, a little bit of a simmer going. Then you strain that out. Now you've got your, your fish fume. That's awesome stuff. Keep that on the side. What you want to do now is take your stock pot, put in a large onion and about five cloves of garlic, all minced up with coconut oil. That's going to be your fat. Start sauteing them in coconut oil. And then you're going to pour in a couple, maybe four cups of your uh, stock, your fish stock. And you're going to put in about one can of full-fat coconut milk. Don't buy the light stuff. Don't be fooled by that. You want the real deal. Put the whole can in there. And then you're going to put in um, minced ginger. And if you can find galangal, you'll put some galangal in there. The juice of two limes. Nice juicy limes will go in there. And a big, take some very cleaned and washed cilantro. Cilantro is filthy stuff. People wash it really well in cold water, take the entire head of it off, twist it, toss it in the pot, and bring this up to a simmer and start cooking all these ingredients. Now, when you get towards the end, you're going to want to put in um, button mushrooms, those white button mushrooms. Just slice them up, toss those in there, and you're going to put in two tablespoons of fish sauce. You can buy this on Amazon. The brands I recommend, Squid, or if you want to get a little spendy, Red Boat. Don't buy any other brands because the ones that I've tried are nasty. Taste like fish sauce. <laughs> That's a joke for you. No, fish sauce is cool stuff, but it's basically fermented fish. So you, you want to buy a good brand, and those two are the those two are the good brands. So in there with the fish sauce and the mushrooms, go two tablespoons of palm sugar. This is coconut palm sugar. And you start simmering this all together. Now, the fish, take your fish and you can, you know, whether it be salmon or heck, you can even use shrimp shells to make your stock and shrimp. But the point is you want to put your shrimp in towards the end and you're going to poach it. So you don't want this thing boiling like a giant cauldron. You want it just doing a little bloopy thing. So simmering lightly, you put in your fish pieces whatever type they may be, and you cook them until they're tender. You don't necessarily want to use anything like flounder or any flaky 
um, fish. No orange roughy for those of you in the Midwest. Uh, sorry guys that have, um, tanks of tilapia. I guess you could use some tilapia. We don't want to waste it, but that wouldn't be my first choice. So once this is all simmering up and you, um, poach your seafood in there, um, you want to taste this. You may have to add a little bit of kosher salt depending upon, um, the, the seasoning level. But what you should taste is just a very slight background sweetness, a rich coconut flavor. You should taste ginger. You should taste cilantro. The mushrooms will be floating around. And folks, uh, lime juice too. You're going to have just a world-class Thai soup. Now, this is so, so good. It's one of those things um, that when you eat it, you just are just amazed at how good it tastes. Now, I'm not saying it's uh, it's like being on the Mediterranean eating that famous fish stew from Marseille, but it's pretty close. And um, because it's a little complex, I'll post the um, amounts over at HarvestEating.com for you. Um, but it is wonderful, and the flavor of coconut and that fish sauce and the ginger and all these kind of things together make for just one incredible tasting um, fish soup. And who doesn't love fish soup? I guess the only kind of fish soup I don't like. Sorry, New Yorkers. Manhattan clam chowder. That stuff's bogus. Not a big fan. But um, all types of fish soups from around the world are just a great thing to, to get involved with. How about another one? Shrimp bisque. I'm sure we'll cover it at this sh- on this show at some point. That is another uh, classic French-inspired uh, soup, which I absolutely love, but heck, why not make a New England clam chowder? That's a delicious thing as well. And uh, that that's one of those recipes that can be botched heavily or it can be awesome. And I generally, uh, I've got family on Cape Cod, so when I go there, I'll always go to my favorite restaurant and, and try some. But my brother used to scratch up those cohogs um, right off the beach there on a boat, and we would take them in, scrub them because they can be pretty filthy on the outside. And those are the bigger clams, not the ones you would eat on the half shell, but the, the big cohogs. And we would process those and and make a beautiful, beautiful clam chowder. So I hope this helps you um, be inspired, but give this Asian soup a try with that coconut milk because it is amazing. And uh, again, folks, thank you so much for tuning in to TSP. Jack, thanks for all you do, man. And uh, those sauce coupons, people, like I said, as you listen to this, the sauce is being simmered in a kettle. So <clears throat> do email me, Keith, at harvesting.com for one of those. And thanks for tuning in, Jack. We'll see you next time. Take care. Great stuff from Keith, and this is a subject near and dear to my heart, too. I, I love Asian flavors, the the ginger, uh, the glengal, uh, the, the, the chili peppers, the fish sauce. All that stuff is wonderful. I have links to the two brands of fish sauce uh, Chef Keith mentioned for Amazon if you want to know exactly what he was talking about there. Uh, those of you that like Asian flavors in general, uh, especially things with seafood, soups, and things like that, there's a TV show I really recommend. Um, I wish there were more good cooking shows on. I wish Chef Keith had a cooking show because he's interesting to watch. And the problem with most of these cooking shows is either the food they're cooking I don't really want to make. It doesn't look very good. Or the people doing it are just, they're not very good at what they do. They're not interesting. They're not engaging. Uh, one of the people I found that I do really enjoy watching cook and uh, listening to talk about cooking and, and traveling around the world is a guy named Luke Nguyen. And 
he has uh, Luke's Vietnam, and then Luke wins Greater Mekong, and he has that Mekong, and then Mekong Two, uh, where he travels all around Southeast Asia and goes to these various places and cooks these these dishes. I looked and I could not find. I mean, Cooking Channel needs to do a better job with the recipes from these shows, like they say they do and don't. Uh, he did recently, and, and I think it was in the Greater Mekong Two series, uh, a fish soup that he made with a guy that fishes for a living, and he makes it like right in the guy's house, and it's chilies and galangal and 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 ginger, and it just it just looked fantastic, and it was so fast. And uh, I'll have to see if I still have that episode on a DVR. If I'm not, I'm sure sooner or later the DVR will catch it again. I was not able to find the recipe for that soup or the video for that soup on YouTube or anything like that. If anybody knows which one I'm talking about, and it's, he probably used more chilies than you and I would use, because the fisherman guy keeps telling him, you know, in, in I think it's I think he's Burmese or he's uh, might be from in Myanmar. I'm not sure exactly which country this one was in. But he's pounding these little green chili peppers with the back of the knife just to crush them a bit and putting them into the broth. And the guy says, put more, put more. And uh, Luke says at the end, that's, that's really hot. Um, so we would probably use a little less chili than was there. But I'd love to get that video for you guys. And I really recommend that show. That's one of the few shows on like Cooking Channel and, and Food Network and all that I really enjoy. All these chef competitions and stuff like that. Hey, Food Network, uh, Cooking Channel, you guys want to do a, a food competition? How about this? How about you take four or five regular people per team, have four or five teams, give each team a captain, have that captain be a really great chef. Have that chef teach them, not yell and scream and act like a freaking moron, Gordon Ramsay, not a bunch of like, you know, drama, psychodrama crap, actually teach them to cook a series of dishes, and then have the teams compete and then make learning part of the show. Here's how you prepare this dish. This is what commonly goes wrong. Here's how you fix that without acting like an idiot about it, screaming and yelling and turning red in the face, being all psycho. How about that? They'll never do it because, well, it makes sense. It's common sense, and it wouldn't be playing to the lowest common denominator, which apparently Hollywood only knows one trick pony, and that's, playing to the lowest common denominator. I'd watch that show, and I'd certainly watch Chef Keith if he ever brought his show back on TV. Uh, he was on Rural Free Delivery TV or something like that for a while, uh, but he does have a great YouTube channel. Check out all his stuff there, and maybe that's the future for chefs. Really great YouTube channels showing people how to cook. That's what people really want to know. They want to know how to take the food that's in their house, and instead of just making it like when you feed it to somebody, people are like, oh, it's pretty good. You want people to say, wow, that's amazing. You want to feel that way about your food. That makes eating enjoyable. That makes your life more enjoyable. And that's a big part of what we do at TSP. Try to design our lives so that they're more enjoyable. I thought this was about survival. If you don't enjoy life, what are you surviving for, guys? Um, we really need to pick our heads up from the doldrums once in a while and build lives worth defending. I want that for as many Americans as possible. That's my goal with this show, to make as many Americans build a life worth defending as possible, because then maybe they'll defend it. Maybe they'll defend it. This nation was designed to be a republic. And the only way a republic can be something worth having is for the people of the republic to value what they have inside of the republic, instead of what they can get from the republic. We've really swung too far in the other direction. We really have. I don't know if we can swing back. I don't know if we will swing back. I certainly don't know if it will happen in my lifetime. I do know this. I'm not willing to wait for everybody else to do it. I'm not willing to wait for the pendulum to swing back. I'm going to take it back. I advise you 
to do the same. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.